Hello. So, uh, welcome back, everybody, to The Weirdest Thing. Welcome to 2021. Hey, it's 2021. Let's start with some, like, cleansing breaths. (laughs) Before we get into my (laughs) incredibly fucked up story this week. (laughs) Uh, uh, How are you feeling uh, now a couple of days into 2021? Uh, Pretty good. Good, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's like a lot to be hopeful for, but I think we, as we were sort of just talking before I hit record, I think we're all experiencing varying levels of PTSD about various things in the world. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's just a, a, a an acute sense of like agita that is just uh, yeah. That's that's the perfect word, agita. Yeah, um, that's Scotty Milder. Yes, I am Scotty Milder. I am a, a horror author, filmmaker here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and that's Amelia Ampuero. Yes, and I am, uh, uh, this is Amelia Ampuero, just in case you can't tell our voices <laughs> apart. I am a, act- what the hell am I? I'm an actor and a theater maker. Uh, I also run Duke City Repertory Theater, which I've decided 2021 will be my year of shameless self-promotion. Yeah, just lean into it. Just, just or yeah. as you like to say, release into it release into the self-promotion release into the joy of self-promotion <laughs> yes uh and i'm also located in albuquerque new mexico the land of enchantment no yeah. so how are your holidays they were good they were quiet you know yeah. because it was it was Those you know still COVID times <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean our our holidays have been pretty quiet for the last several years just because a good chunk of my family well my brother and sister-in-law were living in Albuquerque with my with my super special niece, who's amazing. <laughs> um, but they would alternate. And I can't remember if they would alternate Thanksgiving and Christmas or Christmas and New Year's. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there was always at least one holiday in there that was just like me and my 70 something old folks and they're not yeah. they're not much reporting but i'm glad you and yeah. i got to hang out on new year's <laughs> we and did, at least we did hang out we didn't do a whole lot we did a nice bolivian is it like a kind of cleansing ritual for the year it's uh yeah it's good luck stuff the grapes are actually like an old spanish tradition so i oh, think there are cool. a lot of uh, I I think, raisins instead of grapes he did uh fun fact for our listeners scotty has a weird fruit phobia yeah, I'm going to have um, to do, like, I want to do an episode at some point on my fruit phobia and also on my uh, synesthesia. Oh, yeah. 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 I I guess I'll just listen. Well, I guess I could talk about my nearer, my mirror neuron. That would be a good synesthesia. one. That would be interesting. Um, but so he's got a, he's got a fruit phobia. Um, <laughs> and so Spanish, a Spanish New Year's tradition is to eat 12 grapes apparently you're supposed to eat them in you should have a like a grandfather clock that's chiming and you should eat them by the stroke of midnight but i don't know how you do that and not die i mean (laughs) i mean you have to chew grapes i guess you could swallow them but that seems like a choking hazard and we were also like counting money and yes we counted money Yeah, we counted money, we ate the grapes, we uh, hauled our luggage, we opened the door and went outside. Um, So I think 
the opening the door is to let the old year out and mm-hmm. god bless we needed to let 2020 yeah, fuck out. off old year right and we wanted to let 2020 there it's new clean energy come into the space and then you have to walk around you have to exit your home with luggage that will bring you travel in the new year count money <laughs> so that you'll have money in the new year mm-hmm. um and then you eat your grapes for i think it's for luck yeah it was uh it felt good it felt good. Too. It did, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, my holidays were pretty much the same. I mean, I, I hung out with my also 70-something-year-old parents after essentially quarantining for all of November and December yeah. <laughs> so I could see them. Yeah, because um, you had to go up for Thanksgiving. Yeah. So and then two, quarantined again for, for Christmas. Yeah, two big 14-day quarantines in there. So lots of lots of Netflix, lots of yeah watching diehard movies and stuff i did finally just um uh, i don't <laughs> update was it last episode where i was talking about i how think I, it was which is why it's a good update yeah <laughs> i had stopped watching game of thrones i think around season four or five because mm-hmm. i'm i'm like if I'm, I'm i promise i'm not gonna like go off on a big geek tangent here but I'm I'm like a super fan of the books. And I just got to a point where like, and to be fair to the show, I was very aware when I stopped watching, I was like, this isn't even like a critical reaction of me being like, this show is bad. It was just more like the nerd reaction of like, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's no, Tyrion doesn't get to believe it. Well, you know, okay, like, but let's, you know, uh, let me, let me devil's advocate you here. Um <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily a nerd reaction. I think that's just a, that's a somebody who loves the source material because I think there are plenty of things that if I go and see, yeah. you know, that aren't like the source material, I'm going to be like, let down I mean, by it. Thank you for that. But I'm going <laughs> to, it was, thank you for giving me the benefit of the doubt, but I, it was pretty nerdy. Cause it was like getting in the weeds of like, this is not how the people in cars are supposed to dress and you know, stuff like that. Okay. And that I, is and I just, yeah, I just had to be like, you know what? I'm not enjoying the show. I'm going to quit. I'm going to get, I'm going to like, I had it in my head. I was like, I'm going to give George some time to finish at least the next book. Mm. And then it's just kind of progressively become more obvious that like, that's a futile game to try and wait for the next because I'm going to be waiting for 20 years. I mean, how how long have folks been waiting for the last book? About 10 years. I think Dance of Dragons came out in 2011. So it was a 10 year. And there was a big gap before that too. So like, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'd stopped watching the show, and then I finally decided, really, kind of this weekend, I was like, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to watch Game of Thrones. Like, it's all been spoiled for me. Yeah. And, like, it's pretty clear that the show is diverging pretty far from the books anyway. And I was like, yeah. I think I've got... It's been a while since I've read the books. So I think I've got a little bit of, like, distance where I can actually watch the show and not have that nerd reaction. And so mm-hmm. I just... Like, I think I had one day this weekend where I essentially watched, like, 30 hours of Game of Thrones. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was stupid. It's a lot. Um, so yeah, hot take. Uh, don't hate it. Mm-hmm. Don't love it either. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it just it kind of is what it is. It's like it's a version of the story that I want. Like yeah. it's not the definitive. It's like I think I did. I texted it to you where I was like, it just like the last couple seasons just feel like sort of pretty good fanfic. Yeah, 
yeah i mean that's what yeah. it felt like like it felt like there was like some fan service of like oh we're shipping these characters like don't you want to see so and so get together with so and so and blah mm-hmm. blah stuff like that but it was like kind of the fan service i wanted mostly like if you just take it on that level right and then like yeah that last season that everyone's like i promise i'll get off this in a second but that last season that everyone's pissed off about i think maybe because it had all been spoiled for me so i didn't go in with high expectations mm-hmm. i kind of walked away being like i don't know i was pretty satisfied i think it was rushed like i think the biggest problem was it needed 10 episodes not six episodes yeah that was such a weird thing to be like yeah. okay we're gonna do these like super short last seasons yeah uh, i don't right? know if it was last, like it's the last two that are shorter yeah than, one is seven i think season like, seven is seven episodes and then season eight is six i think yeah it's just weird yeah because it's like I don't know that if they were trying to save money. I mean, it's their big cash cow show. So why would you try to save money on it? Or if it's, you yeah. know, a lot of people are like, oh, Benioff and Weiss are like over it because they're supposed to go off and do a Star Wars movie or something. But I don't know. I mean, it just, yeah, like that last season in particular felt rushed. But as far as the like conclusion of it, I mean, going back to what we were saying last time, I just kind of feel like if you didn't see that coming, like if you really thought you were going to get the the happy ending version that you were uh hoping for and particularly if you were mad like i don't want to spoil anything if there's any last people out there trying to avoid spoilers but right um if you're mad about who ends up i guess king at the end Mm -hmm. um like you're you really missed the point of the series (laughs) yeah 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 like it's i don't know it all felt pretty much in line with what i think he's going for in the books i mean mm. we'll find out you know yeah obviously nobody knows <laughs> hopefully hopefully <laughs> yeah. you all will find out i mean yeah i know knock on wood <laughs> but yeah i mean i that i mean that might also be another reason as to why that might be like a, a psychological block that i have against reading <laughs> the books <laughs> is just i'm like I, i'm not gonna do that to myself didn't you just go and like we were like i think a couple of us were on you to read the books and you were like okay and you just went and read the wikipedia articles or something and that specifically <laughs> had to do with the red wedding which i also will not spoil it here but uh yeah you and 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 someone else i remember we were at we were at o'neill's here in albuquerque Mm -hmm. o'neill's if you would like to sponsor us um (laughs) we can give you shout outs like this but we were at o'neill's and we were sitting on the patio and uh you and this other person were talking about the red wedding you guys have both read the books and you guys were so excited for it and i was like what is it and you guys made the mistake of being like we're not gonna tell you you need to read it for yourself no it's like i'm literally just gonna go home and Wikipedia it I mean, I think we had been friends for like two years at that point. So I just, I probably just didn't know you well enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that mistake now. (laughs) No. And there are things like, there are definitely things where I'm like, don't spoil that for me. Like, please don't spoil that for me. But I mean, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't super into the series and like, I think I had, I had picked up the book and it was the same thing. I think I've said this before that happened with Lord of the Rings where I opened it and I was like, nope. Mm-hmm. like i could tell from well, the density of the text on the first page that yeah. i was like no i don't want to do this. i mean it's funny because like i mean as you know i'm like i'm an uber fan of the books mm-hmm. but i'm not typically a fantasy reader like i don't read that you know the closest i get to like another fantasy series that i love is the dark tower mm-hmm. Stephen king's dark tower which like in terms of the world building the difference between the dark tower and 
uh, Song of Ice and Fire is, is like the Grand Canyon because you can tell like George R. R. Martin it's like so meticulously detailed and plotted out and then with the Dark Tower just Stephen King's like I don't know like a fucking psychotic train let's throw that right in. right you know, it's like you, it's so messy and you can tell he's like just making it up as he goes which is what I love about those books right so I avoided the Game of Thrones books for ever because like I had friends telling me back in high school I think when the first book came out Jesus. they were like you really need to read this book like you'll love this book and I was like I don't read that fantasy shit it's like all the people also trying to get me to watch Battlestar Galactica I'm like what is this like Star Trek I don't read that my god I had so many people wanting me to and like there are it's funny because there are shows like I really hounded you to watch Godless I really hounded you to watch Mm -hmm. Unbelievable yes was that the other one but one two limited series so you know a a set number of episodes and two that was mostly because i thought the work was so good and that is mostly due to merritt weaver who i Mm -hmm. who i stan who is just a an incredible actor Yeah. yeah yeah so that's it but I mean, I'm trying to think. And there are like, yeah, I mean, there are other books that I'm like, oh, oh if you do want to read it, like, awesome, we'll talk about it. Um, you know, I've like told people to read like Water for Chocolate, but there's nothing that I'm like, mm-hmm. you gotta read it, man. Yeah. No, I have people on me. And I was real resistant. Of course you were. For, well, because like I'm metal <laughs> and I'm horror and blah, blah, blah. And people are like, no, specific, both of Battlestar Galactica and Song of Ice and Fire, people are like, you will love these books. Like you specifically will love them. And, like, I had, you know, when I was younger, I read fantasy. Like, I was into Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. So I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it was maybe a year. It was around when I think they announced the HBO series. Okay. That I was like, okay, I'm going to, like, give this Game of Thrones nonsense a try. Mm -hmm. Largely because I had sort of decided, okay, I'll give Battlestar Galactica a try. And then just fell in love with it. And it's, Mm -hmm. like, one of my all-time favorite TV shows. So I was like, okay, well, if it's the same type of thing, I'm going to try and give this this game of thrones thing a try and just immediately like like normally i'm like you like i look at that dense and it's like a bunch of names i can't pronounce and shit and i was like no like i'm 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 not interested (laughs) but i was in right away with those books but i will say like they're a fucking commitment yeah like i used to be big on like trying to push them on people Mm-hmm. Particularly when like the show was like at its height, and I was like, "No, mm-hmm. you really have to read the books. Like, if you really want to get a story, you have to read the books." Blah 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 blah. Then I realized like like most people don't have time. Like these books are fifteen hundred pages long. <laughs> like, yeah, they're intense. Yeah, like it's if you're just watching the show, you're fine. I don't judge you anymore. I used to, but I don't. So. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. Now that that now that we figured that out. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so that was sort of my holiday. <laughs> was a lot okay. of Netflix and things in game of thrones that's hilarious yeah okay should we should we hop into it yeah let's do it so again i'm starting i think and i think this time we decided as i was like doing the research for my story i was like oh this is like real dark like this might actually be the darkest story i've done okay and i was like i don't know if i want to leave people on quite the down note (laughs) of this story so yeah this is the story of the Norwegian black metal murders okay. from the early 1990s. Okay. Um, <laughs> so this was a little bit of, uh, like, this is, I'm going to try not to get too lost in the weeds with this story. Um, mm-hmm. 
this one's a little challenging for me because like i could just spend two hours just geeking out about all the different like subgenres of heavy metal which right like nobody wants nobody wants that (laughs) (laughs) so i'm not gonna do that i promise um but i do think it's important like i do want to talk a little bit about what black metal is okay um because i think you know it's one of those things i think people hear about you know it's like you hear the terms death metal, black metal, thrash metal. You don't really know what these mean unless you're a metal dork like me. So just real quickly, I'm going to talk about kind of the history of, I guess what you would say, the three main subgenres of extreme heavy metal, okay. which would be thrash, death, and then black metal. And I'll play little short little clips from a few songs. Very short because like okay. people will be like, fuck off, Scotty. I don't want to hear this on my like nice walk out with my dog or whatever um but i think it's important to know a little bit of the difference so black metal sort of grew out of both thrash and death metal is kind of a reaction to both so thrash metal it emerged in like the early 1980s um it was really a fusion between the new wave of british heavy metal which is like bands like iron maiden and judas priest okay it's kind of a fusion of that with hardcore punk which was Mm becoming popular at the time or not Mm -hmm. popular but like definitely had its its adherence and thrash became actually a big massive commercial sort of juggernaut in the 80s um and so we talk about the big four of thrash metal which everyone knows it's uh metallica Mm -hmm. who most people credit with kind of inventing thrash but there's, I'm not going to get into the controversy, but there's okay. like typically people argue about this. But Metallica and then Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer. So these are okay. bands like, even if you're not a metal fan, you've at least heard of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, the way to think about thrash metal is it takes the double bass drumming and then the complex guitar of like new wave of British heavy metal bands, but then fuses it with like the speed and aggression of hardcore punk. Okay. I'm going to play just a little bit of a thrash song. This is from a band called Testament. It's the song, it's, uh, the album is called The New Order and the song is called Into the Pit. So. Okay. Deep in the pit and lying alone With death is reared and self on throne Who all the good that found the worst in the past And where the love is their eternal wrath So that's, uh, that's some flash metal. So like, you know, flash metal, it's like super fast, like lots of complex time changes. Like I said, double bass drum pounding Mm -hmm. and then the vocals are typically either shouted like that or uh sometimes clean singing like a lot of times real high-pitched tremolo singing okay death metal basically kind of grew out of thrash metal Mm -hmm. sort of in the mid 80s like thrash metal started i mean i think metallica really started around 1980 1981 death metal came out kind of in the mid to late 80s and there's again there's a big controversy about who's the first death metal band there's a band called possessed mm-hmm. they have an album called seven churches from 1985 and then most people would say the first death metal album proper is a band named called death they had an album called scream bloody gore from 1987 okay. <laughs> yeah so death metal is known for it, it takes like a lot of the elements of thrash but just like sort of turns it up to 11 you know, okay. Spinal Tap. Part yes. Um, <laughs> so it's got blast beats, extreme speed, and then okay. the guitars are much more down-tuned, um, atonal, and then rather than the shouted or sung vocals, what really kind of typifies death metal is like growled 
Ah. So it's like the Cookie Monster vocals. Right. Okay. Death Metal was very, very influenced by Slayer. And then what are sort of called the first wave of black metal, which are bands Mm -hmm. like Venom. But Venom's really a thrash band. Like Venom and Bathory are kind of considered like, oh, this is first wave black metal. But they're really just, they're thrash, but just a little more like dissonant. Okay. Death metal is also like particularly American death metal is really like known for a lot of like shock value. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have like you know some of the early most famous death metal bands from America are like Death, who I already mentioned. Uh, but then you have like Cannibal Corpse, Deicide, things like that. And Cannibal Corpse is really famous for like super gory album covers, really offensive lyrics. Like they have a song like "fucked with a knife" is one of their songs. I mean, it's just like it's fucking Christ. It's, 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 I mean, that's not even, uh, that's not even like the worst. I, I was just going to say, it's one of those things where I'm like, that feels like it's trying so hard. It, it is. It's, it's, so there's a I'm lot like, of trying. Now I, now, yeah, now I just have to laugh at you because like it, it, you, there was a way to do it. And then there was the way that y'all did it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but. You've heard my breaking up a death metal story from I haven't because I I used to be a huge death metal fan, less so now. And just very short version of the story is a friend of mine went to a 15 hour death metal festival in a bar up in Colorado. And around hour 11, one of the bands got up on stage and just the lead singer basically like looks at in the audience and is like this first song is about fucking the shit of the dead. (laughs) And, like, I mean, I'd been there 11 hours. I had a headache. Yeah. And I was just like, really? I don't even know what that means, bruh. Like, like that's what let's you go get a me. taco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exa- I mean, so yeah. me and my friend, we looked at each other. We're like, do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, I think I want to go. And so we left. I think, we're done. <laughs> and I think, I think kind this is of, done. That was the end of my hardcore death metal phase. <laughs> <laughs> but very quickly, I'm going to play a little bit of a Cannibal Court song. <laughs> okay. We'll play much of it because it's obnoxious. Okay. Uh, so the song is called Hammer Smashed Face. Okay. <laughs> the look on your face. I, I hate it. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not converting. <laughs> no, I think. Yeah. I. I mean, honestly, I think metal sounds. I had told somebody one time that my anxiety is like an old school TV that's in the middle of a, of a empty room Mm -hmm. and the TV is just playing static Mm -hmm. and the TV just continues to get louder and louder and louder and louder until it eventually catches on fire. And then it's like this flaming staticky TV that just continues to get louder and louder. And that I think metal is like the, the audio. Yeah personification of my anxiety <laughs> yeah well, i mean and like, so i think of, like when i hear it i'm like no that's exactly what they're going for and i'm not even yeah. like gonna get into like grindcore which is like its own genre it's very similar to death metal but it kind of developed separately yeah but it's like death metal but even more obnoxious <sighs> i still and i and to be honest like i still i have my moments where i'll throw on some death metal but i usually can't do it for that long Right. Let me, you know, and that's, that's solely my opinion. You know what yeah, I mean? Oh, yeah. Like I, 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 I'm, I'm not trying to make any type of judgment on anybody who, who rocks out to that music on the daily, just for me. Yeah. Well, and weirdly <laughs> we'll on my Spotify lists and any, a lot soon. of, 
a lot of the time uh, when I really want to listen to death metal is actually oddly when I have a migraine. I don't know what it is, just about the pounding sound actually yeah. my head when I have a migraine. It's very, very strange. Interesting. Um, so yeah, so death metal, like there's the American scene, which was largely centered on Florida, Tampa, Florida of all places where like a bunch of these bands came from. But then there are various European, South American scenes and really became famous for the Scandinavian death metal scene. This is going to be important when I get to talking about black metal, second wave black metal, which is what we're talking about. So the Scandinavian death metal scene really was centered in Sweden in kind of okay. the late 1980s, early 1990s. And it split pretty early between two cities. So you talk about Stockholm death metal, which is probably closer to American death metal in a way. Mm. It takes a lot more from like hardcore punk again, things like that. And then you have the Gothenburg scene, which was the growth of what's usually called melodic death metal or symphonic death metal. Okay. I don't have any, because I don't want to spend too much time on this, but like, if I do listen to death metal now, I tend to actually listen to the Stockholm stuff because it's like, it's got elements of death metal, but with a lot of prog rock, with keyboards, with like, there's just more musicality to it. Okay. So some of the famous like Stockholm bands are Entombed, Dismember, and then the Gothenburg bands. Oh, I think I I misspoke when I was saying I was, I the death metal I tend to listen to now is Gothenburg, not Stockholm. Okay. Um, so the Gothenburg bands are probably the most famous, like Hypocrisy, In Flames, Edge of Sanity, Opeth. So any metal fans out there, like name checking your favorite bands, everyone else, <laughs> sorry for like, none of this means anything to you. Um, we've, we've lost everybody. We've yeah, lost we all like, the listeners. Yeah. And then, so this leads to black metal, specifically Norwegian black metal, which is, properly like the second wave of black metal like i said it was sort of developed as almost a reaction against death metal because these norwegian bands claimed that the death metal bands specifically the swedish bands were sellouts too commercial too poppy etc um so they were influenced to a degree by like the atonality and the harsh production values of the first wave bands, like I said, Venom and Bathory. And I mentioned the band Bathory when we did our second episode yeah. of Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah. They also took a lot of visual influence from bands like Kiss and King Diamond, even, okay. even Alice Cooper, uh, basically with what they called corp- corpse paint, which is painting their face in this kind of black and white sort of... Um, Like, it doesn't look like a corpse. Right. (laughs) It it looks like Kiss, frankly. But, like, um, but they called it corpse paint. (laughs) Like, real talk, doesn't look like a corpse. Real talk, doesn't look like a corpse. Okay. Um, So here's a quote. This is from, so my main source for this story is this book. I'm holding it up for Amelia. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, uh uh-huh. It's called Lords of Chaos, The Bloody Rise of the Satanic Metal Underground by Michael Moynihan and Diedrich Soderlund. And they, uh, this actually got turned into a movie starring Rory Culkin, I think. Really? A couple years ago. I haven't seen it. I was, I wanted to see it before I did this story, but then Game of Thrones happened. So (laughs) Um, here's a quote from the book. This is from a guy who calls himself Metallion. And he's like an early black metal sort of fanboy, I think. Okay. From the time, and he had a black metal zine. So there's a lot of quotes from him because he knew a lot of these band members. Okay. So he's talking about the corpse paint thing and where the influence came from. And he's specifically talking about a guy named, uh, who he calls Euronymous. And I'm going to be talking a lot about him. So okay. put a pin in that. But Euronymous was the leads, uh, lead guitarist of a band called Mayhem, which is important. But we'll get to that. 
he says about the corpse paint, he says, I think it was really from a band called Sarcophago from Brazil, a very extreme metal band. They released an album and Euronymous was totally obsessed with them because they wore lots of spikes and corpse paint. He said he wanted every band to be like this because he was so against the death metal trend from the USA and Sweden. Death metal bands would play shows wearing jogging suits and he was totally against that. And I just want to say, so with my fucking the shit of the dead story, uh-huh. they were wearing jogging suits when okay. that happened. <laughs> so, okay. you know, there's a part of me that's like, I feel you. I, I, I feel you. Now, they also took their anti-social, anti-Christian, and very explicitly satanic lyrics very seriously. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Satanism here in a second. But just in terms of the sound of black metal, which differentiates it from death metal, it's characterized by, uh, again, we've got the blast beats, but rather than the down-tuned guitars, it's more like high-pitched, high-treble uh, buzzsaw guitar sound. Okay. It kind of hits you like in this wave of sound, you know, blinding speed. Um, and then rather than the growled vocals, it's like high-pitched shrieking vocals. So okay. I promise I'm not going to subject you to much of this, but here's a little bit of a black metal song. This is from the band Emperor who's considered one of the great, but I'll get to why they're problematic, black okay. metal bands of all time. Okay. The song is called Ye and Transimperium. <laughs> yeah, still not a fan? So not a fan. Not <laughs> nope. 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 Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's like black metal proper. And that's what we're talking about today. Okay. So like I said, they were very explicitly satanic in a way that kind of set them apart from the rest of the metal scene. So I think now is a good time to talk a little bit about the context of Satanism at this time, specifically okay. the satanic panic. Satanic panic. Um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because okay. I because there's a lot to the story. And also, I think I actually want to do an episode specifically about the satanic panic at some point. Okay. But just very quickly, let's talk about what Satanism means in this kind of day and age. So you essentially have two branches of Satanism. You have theistic Satanism and anti-theistic Satanism. Okay. So when you're talking about most Satanic churches, Satanic groups, we're actually talking about anti-theistic Satanism. These are explicitly atheistic groups. They don't believe in God. They're kind of using Satan more as a symbol than as mm. an actual deity to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. And you've got a few different branches of this anti-theistic Satanism. The most famous, that probably plays most directly into the Satanic Panic, is the Church of Satan, which okay. was founded by Anton LaVey in 1966. And basically, the Church of Satan is basically, I don't know how to put it. I was kind of, like in my younger wayward youth, I was kind of into it. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll admit but as i've gotten older it's it's pretty disgusting <laughs> like or I, w- I should say it leads to some disgusting uh thought processes philosophies mm. so basically take like an rand level like extreme individualism extreme almost libertarianism like mm-hmm. might makes right worship mm-hmm. of the self you know and then put this like veneer of occultism and satanism on top of it so it's like it, it opens the door to a lot of very right wing kind of mentality to the point where it can be borderline fascistic because it's very like power mm. domination 
oriented. It's not necessarily what Anton LaVey himself designed, but it's kind of how the church has grown over time. Okay. And then the other anti-theistic group that I think people at least these days would be familiar with, it's more recent, it's the Satanic Temple, which was founded by a guy named Lucian Greaves. You guys might have seen the meme out there comparing the two. Basically, Satanic Temple is a very liberal, social justice-oriented, pro-Black Lives Matter group that is specifically kind of targeting the hypocrisy of like right-wing Christianity in this country. So the Satanism is really sort of grafted on the top to just sort of troll right-wingers. These are the people (laughs) who are like insisting that a statue of Baphomet gets put up in like front of an Oklahoma courthouse, Uh, basically to protests, like, you know, people wanting to put the Ten Commandments up things like mm-hmm. that they're also the ones who are doing the the abortion stuff right yeah 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 and saying that it's a it's like a sacred abortion <laughs> sorry yeah. it's a sorry it's a sacred abortion ritual and so yeah. women need to be able to have it because so that they can practice religious freedom yeah it's very much like you know I mean, it's a clever workaround I'll, I'll i will give them that yeah it's basically like there's another quote-unquote church called the church of the flying spaghetti monster Mm-hmm. which is like very similar. It's basically just, it's a fake church meant to kind of troll the idea of a church and really to like push ideas of separation of church and state. And then, like I said, Satanic Temple is very social justice oriented in a way that like I actually find kind of admirable, you mm-hmm. know? It's very, so there's a very hard, hard, hard difference between Church of Satan and Satanic Temple. I think largely because of the the way the culture was, like in the late 60s through the 70s, you know, mass popular uh, things like The Exorcist, The Omen movies, and then of course the rise of things like heavy metal, this led to what was called the satanic panic of the 1980s, kind of into the early 1990s. So just to clarify, is there any entity out there that actually worships Satan? I'm I'm getting to that. Great. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. That would be theistic Satanism. And that's going to be. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Continue, please. And I will get to that when I start talking about black metal. So, okay. So the satanic panic really kind of kicked off with a book called Michelle remembers uh, from 1980. Okay. It was written by a woman named Michelle Smith with her psychiatrist and later husband, mm. a guy named Lawrence Pazder. Suspicious. Um, suspicious, yes. If, if you're feeling suspicious <laughs> now, I'm feeling uh, creepy. Yes, that is. This is the, uh, the. That's the appropriate reaction. Okay, good. Thank you for validating my feelings. Yes. <laughs> so this book it essentially documents this woman, Michelle Smith's recovered memories of being abused by her father uh, and the quote Church of Satan, which I don't think is meant to be Anton Lavey's Church of Satan. Mm-hmm. because the book says that this church of Satan is something that has existed since before Christianity, which doesn't even make sense to me. So basically she went to this psychiatrist, this Lawrence Pazder, uh, to be treated for depression in 1976 after she suffered a miscarriage. And then he started like through his treatment, started helping her recover these quote unquote memories, which mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's pretty clearly bullshit. He's implanting memories in her head. Mm-hmm. And, and they just get more and more crazy as as she reveals more and more of these memories so you know she talks about devil worship ritual sexual abuse and then it goes into infanticide cannibalism etc i mean it's nuts but this really sort of started to kick off this trend of the 
these recovered memories, which then led into the ritual sex abuse daycare scandals of the 80s, specifically the McMartin preschool trial. Okay. You know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there was a, the McMartin family ran a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, and then in 1983, seven of them were accused of abusing their, um, the kids in this preschool. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, through talks with psychiatrists, psychologists, et cetera, social workers, these kids started having these recovered memories of this awful abuse, which again, went into Satanism, infanticide, crazy, crazy, crazy stories. But this actually escalated to the point where these, uh, the members of this family were put on trial in 1987 and 1992, separate trials. Both trials led to total acquittals and dismissal of charges across the board because there was no evidence of any. Right, you think if if there was infanticide, somebody would be like, yeah, my my baby's gone and dead. And I think in some of these, I mean, this was just one, you know, there was just this cascading, you know, mm-hmm. different preschools, different, you know, groups, just this like witch hunt atmosphere that rose in the 80s around mm-hmm. Satanism. And it's, I mean, when you look back on it, like like you said in an earlier episode, if people don't understand where QAnon came from and how it's ballooned into this thing yep. now, you got to look back at the Satanic Panic. Yep. Because it, it's, it's basically the same thing, but without democrats and donald trump (laughs) (laughs) like it's the same crazy level of just nonsense right and then of course heavy metal gets pulled into this dungeons and dragons gets pulled into this hollywood gets pulled into this stephen king was accused of being a satanist you know all sorts (laughs) of stuff so specifically there are two trials involving heavy metal songs supposedly leading to suicide because of I'm sure any of us who grew up in the eighties remember the like backwards messages on the metal albums. Mm -hmm. So two songs in particular, the first trial was Ozzy Osbourne was sued in 1985, I believe uh, because of his song suicide solution. It appears on his 1980 album, blizzard of Oz. Now the song is not about suicide. It's actually about alcohol abuse and addiction. It was uh, specifically written about Bon Scott, who was the lead singer of ACDC who died of, I mean, drank himself to death, essentially. Yeah. Um, but then it was also about Ozzy Osbourne's own struggles with addiction and substance abuse. Well, he was sued in 1985 after a fan supposedly killed himself after listening to the song. And the case really revolved around, there's a lyric that the prosecutors and the family were trying to claim the lyric is, why try, get the gun and shoot. Now, according to Ozzy Osbourne, the actual lyric is, get the flaps out which is apparently British slang about showing your vagina. So, <laughs> I mean, that tracks, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I like this quote. This is from his manager at the time, who was actually the father of Sharon Osbourne, who is now his wife and manager. It's a guy named Don Arden. He says, to be perfectly honest, I would be doubtful as to whether Mr. Osbourne knew the meaning of the lyrics, if there was any meaning, because his command of the English language is minimal. <laughs> <laughs> So, also tracks. Yeah. So there's that song. And then uh, Judas Priest was also put on trial for a song called Better By You, Better Than Me. And this one's like the Ozzy Osbourne one's pretty stupid. Um, mm-hmm. But at least like the song is called Suicide Solution. Like mm-hmm. you can sort of track how they got there, even mm-hmm. though it's crazy. Mm-hmm. This one is like absolutely bonkers. They had a song called Better By You, Better Than Me. It was a cover song, actually. It was originally released by an English band called Spooky Tooth back in 1969. 
I do love that there was a band called Spooky Tooth. Spooky Tooth. Yeah. Um, nice. Judas Priest covered the song in 1978 on their album Stained Class. And then they were sued and put on trial in Reno, Nevada in 1990 after two fans committed suicide, again, supposedly after listening to the song. The entire crux of the argument from the prosecutor is that there's supposedly a subliminal message in the song telling listeners to, quote, do it. Like, do what? I mean, I I'm not going to lie. I hear do it and I think sex. Yeah, I, I certainly mean, don't think if suicide. There, if there was a message in the song, I'm sure it's about <laughs> sex. But they were like, no, clearly this is about suicide. And then the judge in a pretrial motion actually agreed with their legal argument saying that, well, a subliminal message is clearly not protected by the First Amendment because since it's inaudible, it's not free speech. Like, just try and wrap your head around that pretzel logic there. Um, Okay. So that case was ultimately dismissed once it got to trial. But CBS Records was forced to pay the families $40,000 because they refused to turn over the master tapes of the song so that they could, like, pick it apart and look for the subliminal message. And I will say, I have listened to the song and listened to the song trying to hear anyone saying anything resembling do it. And, like, no, it's not there. Like, it's just, but this, this was the world at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, like, you know, going back to, like, what I was saying about the mafia and how prohibition was really what created the mafia, like, the best thing for heavy metal was the satanic panic. Yeah. Because, like, you tell kids who are, like, angry teenagers, like, no, we need to protect you from this thing. They're going to go look for that thing. Yep. And, like, I remember being, I was probably eight or nine years old when a lot of this was going on. This is when they were telling me that Dungeons & Dragons was satanic etc right but i remember like kiss was supposedly stood for knights in satan's service <laughs> yes. um, what is it acdc is antichrist christ, devil's no. children oh <laughs> that, that may it? be another one the one i always heard was after christ the devil comes no yeah i heard it was what i heard was antichrist devil's children yeah <laughs> i think that was it yeah, yeah and i was I like mean, what's lame i remember <laughs> and then of course you had like bands like striper who were like, no, we're God's metal soldiers. And so they had their song. That is song. Uh, what was their? It wasn't Shout at the Devil, because that's Motley Crue. It was To Hell with the Devil. But they're like little bumblebee outfits. Like. I, I just, I, a few years ago, I had a friend who told me, uh, she was asking about being raised Catholic. And she was like, were demons a big thing in Catholicism? And I was like, what do you, like, what do you mean? And she was like, and I don't know exactly what, section of christianity she was raised in but it was some you know i don't know if it was baptist or i don't know um something something. and she was like i spent my entire childhood being terrified of of being possessed by a demon and i was like what and she was like yeah i was like i was raised with the idea that if i was bad that was how like a demon or the devil was going to get into me and then I was going to be possessed by the devil. And I was like, okay, man, say what you will about Catholicism. But like, (laughs) I did not have that fear growing up. I had, I mean, I have a lot of like weird guilt (laughs) and, and you know, this is by, this is in no way a, uh, God, what's sort of, I'm, I'm not like, you know, yay Catholic, yay Catholicism because that church definitely has a lot of issues and problems. 100% but being scared of like being 
you know, possessed by a demon because mm-hmm. I coveted something was not. Yeah, no, I was, I was like adjacent to some of this when I was a kid. I want to get too specific, uh, but there mm. were some members of my family, like not mm. my uh, immediate family, but you know, extended, extended family, who were very, very religious Christian and used to get me to read. I don't know if you guys remember the Chick Tracks. Um, it was these super, super, super fundamentalist, like little comic book religious tracks okay. about. And it all is like, you know, starts with like, Joe is like going to school and then he sees a pretty girl and then he goes home and masturbates. And it always is (laughs) burning in the lake of fire, you know. Oh my God. These family members would take me to events, baseball games specifically, and be like, you know, on the way down, read these. But also like, don't tell your parents, you know, Mm. because my parents were not, (laughs) they would not have had that. And I told my mom about this later and she was like, not happy and kind of was like, why didn't you ever tell me that that was going on? I was like, well, for one, I wanted to go to the baseball games. But for two, those fucking tracks were fucking awesome. Like they were metal (laughs) as shit because it's just like, if you masturbate, you will burn in the lake of fire. Right. Like Tales from the Crypt, you know, (laughs) like I loved it. So yeah, I mean, I was very steeped in this. You know, I'm just the right age for the Satanic Panic to have just, and I think it's probably why I'm a metal fan. Because mm. it was like all the, you know, Ozzy Osbourne is you know the spawn of Satan and you know the demons prince or whatever. And I was like, I need to fucking listen to that. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that was the Satanic Panic, which kind of leads us to the rise of Norwegian black metal. Because the thing you got to understand with all these bands that were sort of flirting with Satanism, playing with the imagery, etc., it was all, it was chakva. It was to piss off your parents. It was to like look bad. You know, even like, again, go back to Cannibal Corpse, you know, song like Fucked with a Knife or Hammer Smash Face. Like you said, it's like trying so hard to be scary. Mm. But it's real cartoony. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't take it that seriously. The Norwegian black metal guys, they took it real seriously. Okay. And led to some bad shit. Okay. So we're going to talk about that. Oh, and if anyone's interested in any more about this subject of Satanism, music, satanic panic, etc., there's a book called Lucifer Rising, Sin, Devil Worship, and Rock and Roll by a guy named Gavin Badley. Okay. Um, it's actually a very good, informative book. Okay, so the second wave of black metal really started with a band called Mayhem, which, again, I, I mentioned the guy Euronymous. Mm-hmm. Not his real name. We'll talk about that here in a second. Okay. Um, Mayhem is really kind of considered the first proper Norwegian black metal band. They were founded in 1984, first as a metal cover band, and then became a death metal band. Their earliest influences were bands like Slayer, Motorhead, Venom, a band called Celtic Frost, etc. But then they they grew into being a straight-up death metal band. And then the lead guitarist, kind of principal songwriter, founding... I mean, I think he was the only member of the band who was like stayed with them the whole time, was a guy named Oystein Arseth, who went by Euronymous. He quickly grew disillusioned with death metal. Now, the thing about these black metal musicians is they all have, like their real name which is like usually unpronounceable to me because mm. they're all norwegian mm-hmm. um and but then they always went but with their scary stage names um so i'm mostly going to be referring to them with their scary stage names 
only okay. because it's easier for me to pronounce. Okay. Um, so from here on out, Oistin Arseth is going to be Euronymous. So he quickly grew disillusioned with death metal because they're fucking sellouts and pussies and whatever. But around this time, when he was still a death metal band, they released a demo, I think 1986, called Pure Fucking Armageddon. Mm. And then various lineup changes. They released an EP in 1987 called Death Crush. It was released on Euronymous's own label, which was called Poser Corpse Music. So just giving you a sense of like what these dudes were like. We were all like in their teens and 20s, you know, at the time. Yeah, yeah, okay. So they did a first pressing of a thousand records and it quickly sold out because the black metal scene in Norway was really starting to coalesce specifically around Euronymous as this almost like guru figure. Um, so here's a quote. This is from that Metallian guy again. He says, I met them at a concert. They told me about their band. I was selling my magazine, so I got to know about them. After a few months, we came in closer contact. At that time, they didn't even have any demo tapes. And then they recorded one in summer of 86, the pure fucking Armageddon demo. It was much more extreme than everything else. The sound was very, very primitive and much more brutal. You couldn't hear anything as extreme as mayhem at the time. And then this is from a guy who called himself Faust. He was the drummer for Emperor, which is the song I played for you guys. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk more about Faust. Faust is a problematic person in his own rap, own, own right. Um, mm-hmm. But here's what he had to say about Mayhem at the time. He, he says, it might sound a bit weird, but Mayhem was the band that everyone had heard of, but not many people had actually heard because they had released the demos, which were quite limited, and the mini LP itself was very limited. You know, this is obviously pre-internet, everything. Right. Says, I remember I thought that these people were very mysterious, because they didn't do many interviews, but they were always in magazines, and I saw pictures of them. They had long black hair, and you couldn't see their faces. It was mysterious and atmospheric, and that made a big impression on me. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, Euronymous fellow, who's, uh, just spoiler alert, not a great guy okay um may he rest in peace uh <laughs> so because you know there's there is murder coming up here yes um, <laughs> and so, I'm, I'm i apologize i don't mean i'm not laughing at the fact that he's dead i mean i kind of do because i think he's a piece of shit but anyway so okay. he was born in 1968 in a city called Sernedal, no norway and then in addition to founding the black metal scene and being the only constant member of mayhem he also founded a metal-themed record store called Helvet in Oslo in 1991. Uh, Helvet sort of became like the unofficial headquarters of the black metal scene, which he called the Black Circle. Okay. Um, it was a lot of fans, other bands who were starting to adapt the sound, uh, hangers-on, etc. So here's a quote. This is from that Metallian guy again. He's talking about Helvet. He says, the opening of the record store Helvet happened a few months after Dead's suicide. So put a pin in that. I'm going to talk about what that is in a second. He says, uh, he goes on, he says, that's the creation of the whole Norwegian black metal scene. It's connected with that shop. The influence of Euronymous had on the young customers in the shop and how he convinced them what was real and not real in this world. A lot of the guys in Immortal and Dark Throne, these are very, very famous black metal bands, uh, we're all into normal death metal, and Euronymous showed them what black metal was really like, how things should be, and they followed him. Looking at that first Dark Throne album compared with the second, you can see Euronymous's influence on the second one. Uh, that's the first Norwegian black metal album after Death Crush, which is the Mayhem one. Uh, he convinced them what was right and what was wrong. He was always telling what he thought, following his own instincts to the true black metal stuff like Corpse Pain and Spikes, worshipping death and being extreme. 
That's what he was telling everyone about. Uh, here's another quote. This is from that Lords of Chaos book. Just describing him, said he was always dressed in black from head to foot. His hair dyed black for added effect. He sported long aristocratic mustaches and wore knee-high boots. His black leather biker jacket was decorated with badges. When talking, he seemed stern and serious, sometimes with pomposity verging on the theatrical. And like, you know, when you read this description, you get this like almost impression of this really imposing person. But I'm going to post a picture of Euronymous. I mean, he just looks like a total goober. Like, okay. not, not, uh, not impressive. Okay. <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm leaning a little bit with my, uh, I don't know, I guess you would say distaste for your, your bias my bias mm-hmm. i will say by the way i am sort of a fan of black metal and i'll get to it in a little bit why that's its own kind of struggle as a metal fan mm. so black metal is often associated with like very right-wing viewpoints down to um fascism neo-nazism etc i'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit Interestingly, though, Euronymous was a communist, but like not a con- not like a socialist, like a nice lefty, like all mm-hmm. of us and our friends. He was a full-on Stalinist. Um, he claimed to be against individualism, personal joy, empathy, and peace. He had been a member of a communist youth group in the mid-1980s, but then left because they were just a bunch of, quote, damn humanists. Um, okay. And then here is a quote he said. He says, as I hate people and I don't want them to have a good time, I'd like to see them rot under a communist dictatorship. He collected like Eastern Bloc memorabilia. And then later he claimed he was a fascist. So it seems like, you know, some of this was sort of a shock tactic, you know, to make him seem more evil and Mm. antisocial than maybe he was. But also he seemed to have this real fascination with power and like the exertion of power. Now, uh, Euronymous also claimed to be a theistic Satanist. So you were asking, I was talking about the anti-theistic Satanist groups, and you were asking mm-hmm. if there are people who actually believe in like the literal devil. Euronymous and a lot of these black metal dudes claim to be theistic Satanists. Okay. So here's his quote. He says, I believe in a horned devil, a personified Satan. In my opinion, all the other forms of Satanism are bullshit. Satanism comes from religious Christianity, and there it shall stay. I'm a religious person and I will fight those who misuse his with uh, capital H name. Mm-hmm. People are not supposed to believe in themselves and be individualists. They're supposed to obey and be slaves of religion. Now it should be said that a lot of people who knew him, you know, people in various other bands, et cetera, have said, this is all bullshit. Like it was, it was mostly a pose. Like okay. he was trying to look as evil as possible. Okay. Um, I'm I mean, not. He just sounds boring. Yeah, he is kind of boring, but I'm not sure it was entirely opposed because we're going to get to this part of the story needs a pretty serious trigger warning. Okay. Um, because this is uh, about suicide. And I was like struggling with how much detail I wanted to get into. Mm. And I decided just to kind of go with it because it's okay. pretty important. It's a pretty important part of the mythology and the history and it tells you a lot about Euronymous as a person mm-hmm. but trigger warning for people this this next chunk uh i'm going to talk about uh uh someone taking their own life okay so one of the singers in the band was a guy named per ingvi olin who his stage name was dead he was born in 1969 in oster haningi 
Sweden. Now, I have it in my notes here where I just am calling him dead, but I don't want to do that. Uh, he also had a, he had a nickname uh, where he went by Pele, so I'm going to call him Pele. Okay. Um, so just a little bit of Pele's history. He supposedly, he grew up in Sweden, so he was not Norwegian. He uh, ruptured his spleen when he was 10 years old uh, in a supposed ice skating accident. But then later his brother has said that he was severely bullied and that this injury actually came from being beaten up so bad that it Ooh. ruptured his spleen and caused internal hemorrhaging. The injury was actually so bad that he was rushed to the hospital and then clinically died. And they were able to bring him back. But after he came back, he grew up after that. He had this very marked fascination with death. Almost an obsession with death. Mm -hmm. Um, So as he moved into his teen years, he founded a death metal. This is still in Sweden. He founded a death metal band called Morbid in 1986. But like Euronymous, he was growing very disaffected with the death metal scene. Thought Mm -hmm. they were sellouts, thought they were posers, etc. He had discovered Mayhem based on their demos and became a big fan. So he actually reached out to contact Euronymous. This is according to the bassist of Mayhem, uh, who went by Necro Butcher. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, again, appropriate mm-hmm. reaction. Pele sent the band a demo tape, a manifesto explaining his ideas about the future, and then a crucified mouse, because why not, I guess. Mm. Yeah. So after this, he and Euronymous kind of became friends and he ended up moving to Norway in 1988 and became, I think he was the third lead vocalist for Mayhem. Okay. I think there were a couple people before him. Now he took a very different approach to the corpse paint. So like I said, like when you look at the corpse paint of most of these guys, um, it's very like stylized, like black around the eyes and then white. Mm-hmm. You know, very white, white, white. You know, it looks like Kiss. It looks like kiss paint pele took a very different approach um so here's a quote from uh mayhem's drummer a guy named hellhammer calls himself hellhammer he says before the shows dead used to bury his clothes into the ground so that they could start to rot and get that grave scent he was a corpse on stage once he asked us to bury him in the ground he wanted his skin to become pale so if you look at like pictures of the band you have everyone else in their very stylized corpse paint and his is just like he looks like a dead body Like, he was really trying to look dead. So he had this morbid fascination. Also sounds like uh, deep, deep, deep issues with mental illness and depression. Yeah. For instance, he carried a dead crow with him on tour that he apparently found. Um, He kept it sealed in a plastic bag. And then he would smell the crow before going on stage so that he could sing with death in the nostrils. Um, And, like, this could sound like more, like, poser bullshit. But when you hear more about pele yeah no this is this is something else he was deeply deeply troubled yeah he would cut himself on stage including once with a broken beer bottle the wound was so severe that they had to rush him to the hospital um but he actually waited too long they weren't able to stitch it up because he had waited too long Mm -hmm. everyone described him as having this dark introverted personality so euronymous said about him this was at the time he says i honestly think dad is mentally insane which other way can you describe a guy who does not eat in order to get starving wounds? And then again, Faust, the drummer from Emperor said, dead wasn't a guy you could know very well. I think even the other guys in Mayhem didn't know him very well. He was hard to get close to. I met him two weeks before he died. I met him maybe six to eight times in all. He had lots of weird ideas. I remember Arseth, so he's talking about Euronymous, uh, was talking about him and said he did not have any humor. 
He did, but it was very obscure. Honestly, I don't think he was enjoying living in this world, which of course resulted in the suicide. Now there's some spec, I'd only just saw this today. This is, just came from Wikipedia. Apparently there's some speculation that he might've had something which is called Cotard delusion, which uh-huh. is, oh, so you've heard of this. Yes, this is in, like, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, apparently it's an extremely rare condition where the victim actually believes that their body is a corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, and various statements and stuff he made sort of suggest that this may have been one of the things that he was struggling with. Mm-hmm. Um, so his suicide. Mm. He, over time, his mental condition continued to deteriorate. He would cut himself in front of his friends. While most of his friends tried to stop him, Euronymous actually encouraged him uh, because he thought it went along with Mayhem's evil, quote, image. Mm. and that i've read several quotes of people being like yeah euronymous had been like pushing him for a while to actually kill himself Oof. in 1999 pele euronymous and hellhammer were all living together in this isolated house like out in the woods i think outside of oslo pele grew more and more introverted he spent most of his time by himself he was like apparently mostly drawing and writing he was also not getting along with euronymous at the time these had episodes where apparently Euronymous was up playing like very loud synth music like late at night. Mm-hmm. And so Pele was like, fuck this, went out into the woods to, to go sleep to get away from the sound. And so Euronymous will like grabbed a shotgun and just started firing it off just to antagonize him. So it's like stuff like that. Apparently things wow. got so bad that uh, at some point Pele actually tried to stab Euronymous. Now, he was also apparently upset about the direction of Mayhem, the band, and the lack of financial success. And so here's a quote from Hellhammer, who was, again, the drummer of Mayhem. He says, Euronymous was always telling him, lying to him, that, yeah, we're going to be very rich, just wait. But in fact, they were very poor and had no food to eat. Euronymous was a dreamer. The goals he set were far too high. Okay, so here's the actual suicide. On okay. April 8th, 1991, Pele was alone in the house. He took a hunting knife and slashed both of his throat and both of his wrists. And then he shot himself in the head with a shotgun. And so I I debated whether to uh, include this, but I'm going to. Uh, Mm. Here's his suicide note because it's pretty legendary in metal circles. So this is what he said. He wrote, excuse the blood, but I slipped my wrists and neck. It was the intention that I would die in the woods so that it would take a few days before I was possibly found. I belong in the woods and have always done so. No one will understand the reason for this anyway. To give some semblance of an explanation, I'm not a human. This is just a dream and soon I will wake. It is too cold and the blood kept clotting. Plus my new knife is too dull. If I don't succeed dying to the knife, I will blow all the shit out of my skull. Yet I do not know. I left all my lyrics by let the good times roll plus the rest of the money. Whoever finds it gets the fucking thing. As a last salutation, may I present life eternal, quote unquote. Do whatever you want with that fucking thing. So I think these are songs that he had written. Mm. And he signs it Pele. I didn't come up with this now, but 17 years ago. Um, So I wonder if this referred to that time he ended up in the hospital. Yeah. Now here's where things get, if it wasn't dark enough, here's where things just get incredibly darker. Okay. So Euronymous discovered the body. Um, he came home. The doors were locked. He had to climb in through the kitchen window, found Pele dead, 
Instead of calling the police, he left the house, went to a store, got a disposable camera and took pictures. He arranged things around the body and took pictures. And then later it was rumored uh, that he made a stew out of Paley's brains and used pieces of his skull to make necklaces. Now, the band has denied these rumors, but then Mm. they said, like, okay, the thing about the brain stew is that that's bullshit, but he did actually make these necklaces from pieces of his skull, and he would give them out to musicians that he thought were worthy. Um, So apparently they're still out there, but I couldn't find, like, anyone who, like, caught to actually have one of these necklaces. Mm -hmm. Now, he promised to just, like, when, when the other band members and friends discovered that he had taken these pictures. They were like, you have to get rid of this. Um, and he was like, okay, okay, I'll destroy the photos. Instead of doing that, he actually sent at least one of them to the owner of a small record label called Warmaster Records, who then mm-hmm. used the photo for an album cover for a Mayhem bootleg. And I've seen, the fo- I've seen that album cover. I've actually seen it in record stores um, back in the 90s, like mm-hmm. not long after this happened. And I mean, it's awful. Like, don't go looking for it. It's, it's awful. Um, but this is like supposedly his friend, his bandmate. Yeah. Know? This is why I'm like, I think uh, Euronymous was a piece of shit. Now, after Euronymous himself was murdered, which obviously I'm getting into that story, um, his dad found the photos while he was cleaning out his apartment and he threw them away. So I think the only one that anyone's ever seen is the one that got used as the album cover. The bootleg album cover. So this created this was the beginning of creating a, a big schism in the black metal scene because you know even as evil as all these kids were, this was going way too far. For yeah. So you know many people were just appalled by just his lack of feeling, lack of remorse, and Necro Butcher, the bassist, actually left the band and ended his friendship with Euronymous and like wouldn't have anything to do with him until after his death. Like even after his death was like, I wanted nothing to do with him. Mm. Now Euronymous later tried to claim that uh, Pele committed suicide uh, because he was disillusioned with all the sellouts in the black metal scene. So this is his quote. This is from wow. Yeah. Okay. He says, dead killed himself because he lived only for the true old black metal scene and lifestyle. It means black clothes, spikes, crosses, and so on. But today there are only children in jogging suits and skateboards and hardcore moral ideas. They try to look as normal as possible. This has nothing, nothing to do with black. These stupid people must fear black metal. But instead they love shitty bands like Deicide, Benediction, Napalm Death, Sepultura, and all that shit. We must take this scene to what it was in the past. Dead died for this cause, and now I have declared war. I'm angry, but at the same time, I have to admit that it was interesting to examine the human brain in rigor mortis. Death to false black metal or death metal. So, yeah. Like, fuck this guy. Yeah. Yeah, he sounds like a real dick. Real dick. I'm not, uh, when I said uh, rest in peace, I don't actually mean it, but... Uh, okay so now we need to talk about another piece of shit okay (laughs) a guy who many people will know this name because he's actually become famous somewhat outside of black metal in particular Mm -hmm. guy named varg vikernes who he started a band it was essentially a one-man band called burzum uh so he was born christian vikernes in bergen norway in 1973 later changed his name to Varg. Apparently when he was six years old, his family moved to Baghdad for a year. According to him, I guess his dad worked for Saddam Hussein as a computer programmer. 
so this was back i guess before we all hated saddam hussein um yeah so and he claimed they were they were in baghdad for about a year and since there was no english speaking school to go to vikernese had to go to a regular iraqi elementary school and this is where he became aware he claims of differences between the races in particular about the power that he wielded as a white person because he said while the other students would be punished physically when they acted out he realized that the teachers would not dare hit him because he was white so rather than think about things like maybe i should examine my privilege now again he's six years old but he's like "Ooh, i like this i like this power so or maybe uh, they thought that he was like intellectually disabled and that's yeah. why they, they were like we can't beat him because yeah. he's got problems yeah i mean you know and like this is all stuff that comes from his family and it sounds like his family were all kind of shitty racists okay and where is he from he's from bergen norway okay, okay. Uh, so it's a, like a city i didn't look up where it is but i think it's not far from oslo Okay. Now, he also claimed that his father had a swastika flag at their home when he was growing up, but he dismissed his father as a hypocrite because even though his dad didn't like minorities, didn't want Vikernese to date a black girl, for instance, he was very worried that Vikernese would become a neo-Nazi, which is sort of what he did. Okay. Um, so some have claimed that as a teenager, he became part of a white power skinhead culture. He has denied it, uh, and he has said, mm-hmm. well, there were no skinheads in Bergen at the time, so I couldn't have been. So I don't know. Who knows what the truth of that is? Mm-hmm. But he's clearly a racist. Um, mm-hmm. he, he became a metal fan in his early teens. He listened to these new wave of British heavy metal bands, thrash bands, like all of these black metal guys. He was into Venom and uh, Bathory, all these bands. Um, also was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. He used the stage name Count Grishnok. Okay. And Grishnok was the name of an orc in the Two Towers. Um, and even the, the band name, Burzum, uh, it comes from Lord of the Rings. It means darkness in the, quote, black speech that's inscribed on the One Ring. It's like mm-hmm. the whole One Ring to rule them all, quote. Um, part of it is uh, this Burzum, which means darkness. At 14, he started playing a, a death metal in a band called Uruk Hai, which, again, Lord of the Rings reference. Uh, mm-hmm. And then later a band called Old Funeral. But like all these guys, started in death metal, got disillusioned, decided to move to black metal. Um, so once he dis- discovered this, now thrive he was a little younger than the rest of these guys they were all born 68 69 he was born 73 so he's like four years younger okay so he came on around a little bit later and this is like after pele had killed himself this is after this helvete store became like the hub for the black metal scene the black circle mm-hmm. burzum was kind of a late addition to this group but he and Euronymous became very good friends. Euronymous, at the time, you know, he had his Poser Corpse music label, which had sort of evolved into a, a, a label called Death Like Silence. They put out Burzum's first album in 1992. It, it, it's Death Like Silence's second official release. Okay. Burzum is an interesting, it's got an interesting place in metal history, particularly this album, because like you can't have black metal without this album this was Mm. one of those albums that really like put the genre on the map so to speak you also can't have because like this album is so central like you can't get away from the racist neo-nazi ideology that to be fair most black metal bands are like we don't want no part of that Right. But there is this offshoot of black metal. I'm not going to name any of the bands because fuck these guys. Right. Um, but uh, I'll really kind of, it's, it's called National Socialist Black Metal. 
And it all kind of grows out of this Burzum fan worship of Vardyngernese. So, you know, he and Euronymous became super, super tight friends. Death Like Silence put out this first album. Euronymous actually played guitar on one of the songs. I think he played a guitar solo. Mm-hmm. And then Vikernese, after Necro Butcher left Mayhem because he was pissed off about how Euronymous treated the suicide, mm-hmm. Vikernese joined the band as their new bassist. And he recorded bass tracks for Mayhem's only release with Euronymous. Mayhem has since like reformed without him. Mm-hmm. Necro Butcher and Hellhammer with like other random people have kind of put together a version of Mayhem that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as this original incarnation of the band, they only put out one album. It was called De Mysteries Dom Satanis. And it actually wouldn't even be released until after Euronymous's death. Mm. And Vikernes played on the album, and there was talk about, you know, after Vikernes killed Euronymous, pe- you know, they were still mixing the album, and people were like, you should record those bass tracks. And I think it was, I'm not sure who it was, it was one of the people in the band basically said, no, we wanted to leave his bass tracks on there because we thought it was appropriate that the murderer and the victim appear on the same album. Oof. So, spoiler alert, Varg Vikernes murders Euronymous. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, good story. Yeah, and the end. Okay, what's next? Um, no, so they became very good friends, but then they, and, and, and you got to keep in mind, a lot of this is happening within like a two-year window. Wow. Like, you know, the Hell V record store and the black metal scene kind of starts in 1991, and then we get into the church burnings, which I'm going to talk about here, and then the murders start happening around 1993, 92, 93. Okay. So church burnings, these black metal guys... I think one thing that happened is once Euronymous and Varg Vikernes became friends, it was like Euronymous was kind of out there on his own as like the most extreme. And like he sort of mm-hmm. had a kindred spirit in Pele, but Pele was this like very introverted, very damaged, very troubled person that I think just ended up being bullied by Euronymous. Yeah. Like when Euronymous met Varg Vikernes, he kind of met his match, like two yeah. very powerful, strong personalities that, initially came together as fast friends and really like just amped up each other's toxicity to what became very dangerous levels. So things escalated to the point where they started burning down churches. Uh, Norway is very famous for these like medieval wooden churches Mm -hmm. and they went and burned down a bunch of them. So on June 6, 1992, the 12th century Fantoft Stave Church outside of Bergen was burned. At first, the authorities thought it was like a lightning strike, Mm -hmm. but very quickly they realized it was arson. And then more and more churches started to burn. No one knows exactly who it was who was behind the burnings, but most people seem to think it was either Varg, Euronymous, a combination of the two, maybe with someone else in the scene popping up here and there. But it seems like it was most most likely Varg and Euronymus, who were the main mm-hmm. people. Uh, happened sort of over the course of a year. Vikernes himself was later convicted of burning or attempting to burn three of the churches. He's never officially taken responsibility for it, but he did reach out to the Bergen newspaper at the time, mm-hmm. essentially to claim responsibility. They wrote a big article, I think in uh, 1993, January 20th, 1993, he was interviewed anonymously, and he told the reporter that he was not only behind the church burnings, but also that he, he had murdered a man in Lillehammer. Put a pin in that, because I'm going to get to that. It's not ever been super clear who this murdered person is, mm-hmm. but I think I know who it is, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Okay. He also set up with interviews with other members of the black metal scene, all of whom, you know, part of this black circle, 
all of whom claimed they were responsible for these church burnings. They all claimed to be Satanists. They said that the burnings would continue, etc. So the article was published on January 20th, 1993 with the headline, We Lit the Fires. It included a photo of Vikernes hiding his face and holding two large knives. So I think he's kind of, you know, no one can see me. But I'll see if I can find that picture and post it on social media. Okay. Um, but it was real dumb because, like, by the time the article came out, he'd already been arrested for this. Like, he just, like, led a trail of breadcrumbs right to the police cop mm-hmm. store. Uh, he also later claimed that the article was planned by him and Euronymous essentially to build publicity for the scene and to have like exposure for Helvete, this record store. The whole thing backfired pretty drastically, though. Yeah. Um, police really started zeroing in on this Helvete record store. So it was, it was like, you know, they were hoping like they'd get more like fans to come and buy buy records and it's like the cops were like what's going on at this record yeah so the wrong kind of exposure right but also they didn't tell anyone in the scene that they were going to do this so in most of the black metal bands at the time they they weren't white power bands they were sort of playing with the satanism thing but they weren't nearly as serious about it and they were like we don't want any part of this and now we're being pulled into this this is going to be a big problem so people started to really turn on both neuronymous and uh vikernes uh, to the point where people were calling for violence against the two of them. Now, it's not super clear what Varg Vikernes's like, relationship is with the whole Satanist thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he was sort of playing at Satanism early on, but he really has moved into, like, pagan heathenry, like Norse god worship and stuff. So, whereas, like, Euronymous was very explicit in his Satanic beliefs. You know, we must be the slave to the dark god or whatever yeah varg vikings essentially claimed that the burnings were revenge for the christian domination of viking lands and like the desecration of viking temples and stuff okay like i said no one knows exactly who burned the churches you know after being arrested he never has taken responsibility but he would say things like well you know if i were to speculate about what these burnings were about and then you know sort of like when oj simpson put out the like well if i did it kind of yeah yeah kind of that kind of thing he did say that he knew that all of the churches were burnt by a single uh person except for one of them so okay who knows okay so let's get into the murders um and this one i don't want to spend a lot of time on and again i'm going to give a trigger warning because it's a hate crime okay so remember i mentioned that guy faust who is Mm -hmm. the drummer for the band emperor which is the song that i played the clip of for you guys Mm -hmm. there's a guy named bard gudvek ethun uh, but I'm going to call him Faust. Drummer for Emperor. Uh, they were one of the early bands that kind of coalesced as part of this black circle around Euronymous and this Helvet record store. In August of 1992, Faust was visiting his family in Lillehammer when he stabbed a man named Magne Andreessen to death. Okay. Um, I don't want to go into the details of the the murder itself too much. Like I'm not going to go into the gory details because like I said, it's a hate crime. As Faust told the story, he was walking home through the Olympic Park. This was like after the Lillehammer. Right. So he's walking home through the Olympic Park, which had at this point become a well-known cruising spot for gay men. Now he claimed that Andreessen was drunk, approached him, and propositioned him for sex. Faust agreed and then followed him into the woods where he proceeded to beat and stab him to death. Okay. The lead singer of Emperor, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about Emperor in their place because I'm actually, like, I have mixed feelings about them as a band. 
Isan, the lead singer of Emperor, claimed in Lords of Chaos, he said that he doesn't think it was really motivated by homophobia. He thought it was more just a crime of opportunity. Faust apparently had been fascinated by serial killers and murder for a long time and had talked about how he wanted to know what it was like to kill someone. So it was maybe explicitly a homophobic hate crime, maybe not. Several people have said, well, he wasn't really homophobic. We don't think this was about homophobia, etc." I'm like, take all of that with a big grain of salt. Yeah. Also, yeah. if I feel like if you're like, if you've ever spent a day in your life being like, I wonder what it would be like to kill somebody, get help. Yeah. It's not like. That's not a normal thought. That's right. not like, that's like, you're not okay. It's not like. <laughs> Seek help. Yeah. I mean, it's like, to be, to be clear, you know, if given the benefit of the doubt that it wasn't an explicitly homophobic right attack right um, not a defense not a no. defense for brutally murdering an innocent person for no reason no and if somebody um, tells you that they have frequently wondered what it would be like to kill somebody get away from that person yeah now to be fair to the rest of the band emperor they very quickly distanced them. like he was out of the band mm. etc you know, they, they continued on for a while. They did not, they did not condone it, but they were, uh, you know, they were associated with the scene. And it seems like there's a lot of this kind of thing brewing around. And like I said, I, I am sort of a fan of Emperor. Uh, mm -hmm. They're one of the most important black metal bands and they have this one album that I do listen to. I, I refuse to listen to any of the stuff that Faust drummed on, but they're like, they're one of those bands where it's like, you know, it's not super clear where they stood politically on a lot of this mm, stuff. Yeah. So I always, you know, it's like what I've talked about, you know, in that one episode being an HP Lovecraft fan. It's like, can't run, can't run from it, you know? Yeah. So he was actually free for a year because like, it was just this random crime. No one connected it to him, but being, you know, not a genius, like most of these people, he was going around bragging. About it. He was telling everybody that he had done it. Okay. Which is probably why Varg Vikernes sounds like tried to take credit for it in this interview. Ah, so that's when ah. you know, I said we we're going to get back to that, him claiming he killed someone in Little mm -hmm. I don't think anyone knows it for sure, but it sure seems like he was probably trying to take credit for, he knew about it because Faust had yeah. told them about this. So of course, word got back to the police. They went and arrested him and he pretty much immediately confessed he was sentenced to serve 14 years in prison but uh only served nine was released in 2003 and he's out there drunk like he's he's drumming in bands and stuff i think emperor might have even reunited with him at some point which didn't mm. make me happy but mm -hmm. okay so now we're going to get to the meat of the story which is the murder <laughs> of Euronymous. an hour and a half in yeah yep. okay <laughs> holy shit it really is. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. This is a long ass story. Um, <laughs> almost done. So the murder of Euronymous. So after the newspaper article, Euronymous shut down Helvete because it was drawing all this attention from the police. Mm -hmm. No one knows exactly what motivated Vikernes to kill Euronymous because there's all sorts of conflicting stories. But they're known to have had a falling out uh, in the time before the murder. Some people say it was financial disagreements after the release of this first Burzum album. Then after the schism in the scene, after the article was published, there was this kind of power struggle for who was like the pure black metal you know, icon mm -hmm. in the scene. And so people were sort of coalescing either around Euronymous or around Varg Vikernes, or a lot of people just abandoning the two of them all together. So here's a quote. This is from 
Isan, lead singer of Emperor, he says, I know they I knew they had a conflict. Euronymous had said he thought Grishnak was an asshole. Grishnak thought Euronymous was an asshole. To some degree, I think it was a fight for leadership. In some way, they both wanted power and to be the leading man. They had both done a lot. Grishnak started the church burning, but Euronymous had the shop and kind of started the scene up. They're both important people for the progression of the scene. So also people think that since Varg Vikernes had tried to claim credit for this murder on Lillehammer, it seems like he might have been trying to outdo Faust by committing a more high-profile killing. Wow. Vikernes, for his part, has claimed that he killed Euronymous in self-defense. So he said that he found out through the grapevine that Euronymous was planning to knock him out with a cattle prod, then tie him up and torture him to death. He claimed that one of their mutual friends told him about the plan. And then his quote, he says, if, if he was talking about it to everybody and anybody, I wouldn't have taken it seriously. But he just told a select group of friends and one of them told me. So that made him take it seriously. According to him, who the fuck knows? There are other stories about Euronymous threatening to kill people. You know, mm-hmm. he's making necklaces out of skull pieces. I mean, like not a good guy. So it's not entirely implausible, but... So on August 10th, 1993, this is almost a year exactly after uh, Faust killed uh, Andreasen and Lillehammer. Mm-hmm. Vikernes and a fellow black metal musician named Snor Blackthorn Roosh drove down to Oslo from Bergen to confront Euronymous at Euronymous's apartment. Supposedly the meeting was going to be about a uh, contract. Might have been about this contract dispute they had okay. on the record. Blackthorn hung out in the apartment stairway smoking a cigarette while Vikernes went up to Euronymous's apartment, which was on the fourth floor. Euronymous then, uh, apparently, Euronymous opened the door. They talked about the contract. I think things escalated. And then Vikernes said when he tried to hand the contract to Euronymous, Euronymous freaked out, panicked, and kicked him in the chest. And then ran into the kitchen to grab a butcher knife. So the two struggled over the knife. It sounds like in this hallway outside of Mm. the apartment. And Vikernes ended up stabbing Euronymous to death. Euronymous was later found in the apartment building stairwell with 23 stab wounds, most of which were in the back. I think 16 of the stab wounds were in the back. Vikernes later tried to claim that uh, most of these stab wounds came from Euronymous falling into broken glass, which seems like, like, I feel like they would know the difference. <laughs> like the forensic yeah. people. I also feel like, what would you say, 23 stab yeah. wounds? Yeah, that's... That's a lot. That's a frenzy. Yeah, it doesn't seem like self-defense. Oops. Yeah. Yeah. Now, after the murder, they didn't call the police. They didn't report it. After the murder, Vikings and Blackthorn drove back to Bergen. And then Blackthorn later claimed that the murder was planned in advance and that Vikings had pressured him into going along. And then this is what Blackthorn said. He says, I was neither for it nor against it. I didn't give a shit about it least. Now, Vikings said that the attack was unplanned, the Blackthorn had simply come along to show Euronymous some guitar riffs he had written. I got to say, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because Blackthorn's like hanging out in the stairwell while Vikernes goes up to the apartment. If he's like wanting to show him guitar riffs, wouldn't he go up together? Mm-hmm. Sure sounds like he was a lookout to me, but who am I to say? So Vikernes was arrested five days after the murder. First, he tried to blame these satanic Swedish black metalers. I didn't want to get into it, but there was a whole rivalry on between the Norwegian black metal scene and the Swedish black metal scene mm-hmm. about who was like the most evil and whatever. Yeah. When police arrested Varg Vikernes, they found 150 kilograms of explosives, explosives and 3,000 rounds of ammunition in his home. It has been claimed that he was planning on blowing up this like leftist anarchist hangout. It was like a punk 
hangout in Oslo called Blitz House. But Vikernes claimed, well, no, he was just simply collecting explosives and ammo to, quote, defend Norway in case the country was attacked. Because Norway is a big conflict Yeah, I mean, we're all, like, going after Everybody's gunning for Norway. Yeah. fucking next, Norway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Vikernes went on trial in 1994. It was around the same time that both Black, Thorne, and Faust went on trial. Uh, Faust for the separate murder, the murder in Lillehammer. It was kind of like a trial of the century in Norway. Like, Varg Vikernes really became, like, a media villain. Mm-hmm. there's like famous pictures of him like courtroom photos of him just like glaring at the camera from like the defense table and then here's a quote this is the guitarist from emperor a guy named samoth samoth again not his real name stage name he says i was hoping it wasn't vikernes who did it because i knew that all this would lead to a lot of shit but vikernes was arrested shortly after and then the ball started to roll the police began a huge investigation of the whole scene both in norway and sweden the fact that euronymous died did not affect me much personally but because of his murder the whole thing collapsed and we all got bloody arrested and ended up in prison and this was kind of the end of this era of the norwegian black metal scene um was not the end of black metal as a genre right still going on today right but you know the scene really split and, and black metal actually did become a commercial, like it's became very popular, mm-hmm. very high production value. There's also a lot of like black metal influence bands that are not explicitly black metal. Okay. And then there's still this like underground black metal scene, which really did move into the like national socialist black metal, like Ooh, okay. heavily inspired by Burzum and the racist white supremacist ideology. The prosecutors claimed that, uh, the murder was planned by Vikings and Blackthorn and an unnamed third person who had stayed behind in Bergen to establish an alibi by using his credit card to rent movies and food, order food. Mm-hmm. So that seems suspicious. Yeah. Also, on the day he was sentenced, someone went out and tried to burn down two more churches in a symbolic show of support. And no mm-hmm. one knows who that was. Uh, he received a 21-year sentence, which is apparently Norway's maximum for murder they didn't do life sentences mm-hmm. and then blackthorn got an eight-year sentence sentence for being an accomplice while in prison vikernes this is when he really became known as a well-known white supremacist publishing a lot of material i'm not going to talk much about it because fuck him i don't want to put that out in the world mm-hmm. not going to refer to any of it he also continued recording under the burzum name still does to this day but he moved away he like denounced black metal he now does this like ambient and like folk music supposedly distance himself from satanism and black metal but has like fully embraced this idea of like racism and nordic heathenry okay paroled in march 2009 still out there spewing his bullshit so that is the story of Varg Vikernes. Now, just real quick, and then I'll be done. Because I do want to say, like, I am somewhat of a fan of some of the black metal music. Mm-hmm. But I tend to stay away from these, like, originalist black metal bands because of all these ties. Um, but there are all these bands who have, like, sprung out that are, like, like I said, black metal influenced bands that are not so explicitly, certainly not tied to the scene in any way. Right. So one man, just to end on a slight up note. Okay. Um, you know, like if you guys remember when I was talking about H.P. Lovecraft, where I said, you know, my favorite like Lovecraftian fiction are, you know, from black writers a lot of mm-hmm. times who sort of, you know, stuff like Lovecraft Country. Mm-hmm. You know, people who uh, reclaim Lovecraft and then tell it from a black perspective. Mm-hmm. Sort of a way to like, you know, confront the racism head on. Well, in that vein, there's a band called, it's a new, very recent band 
uh, Zeal and Ardor, created in 2013 by a guy named Manuel Gagnou. I, I'm not pronouncing it right, I don't think. He's half Swiss, half, like, his father was Swiss. His mother, I think, was a black blues singer. Oh, um, uh-huh. But he was raised in Switzerland. And before the start of Zeal and Ardor, he had been known for his chamber pot project, Bird Mask. Um, so very different. And I've listened to Bird Mask, not metal. Mm. <laughs> um, but apparently he was like going back to his teen years he was he had been a metal fan so after posting some of his bird mask music on 4chan which you know is risky is 4chan yeah yeah he uh asked people was like give me a mashup of two genres you'd want to hear and so someone chimed in and said do some black metal and then someone else chimed in and said do some inward music so and of course i'm not going to use the word but inward music but rather than like get offended or run away from it he took it on as a challenge and he created zeal in our door essentially is a fusion of black metal with american black spirituals mm. um, and specifically it's examining the question of what music might have been created if the black slaves from america had not adopted the christianity of their white owners mm-hmm. but rather adopted the figure of satan as like a liberator Satan, mm. the light bringer, etc. So I'm going to play just a little short clip of some zeal in our door, so you can. Okay. As a, even though it's still metal and you're not going to like it, it's a bit of a palate You lost me there at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I was like, okay, I mean, I don't like this, but I can, like, like, kind I'm not into, into it, it, but, like, but yeah, but then, like, then you a, lost me. As a metal fan, though, like, I just, I love, just, just run headlong into this. Like, there's this deeply problematic, violent, racist history with the genre of music. And here's a black guy being like, I'm going to do it my way. Right. But I'm going to do it. Like, he's not, he doesn't shy away from the black metal aspects. They are, like, front and center. And uh, Zealand Ardor is very popular. Like, they're, they've become sort of uh, one of the big bands of today. So that is the incredibly grim, but hopefully slightly uplifting at the end <laughs> in its own way <laughs> <laughs> version uh, or tale of the Norwegian black metal murders. I'm sorry. I did not realize that story was going to be that long. Yeah. We're, we're, we're running on, yeah. we're running on like two hours. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was grim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More uh, than I expected it to be when I first thought of doing that topic. Well, it's funny. Cause like, you know, these stories, you know, it was something that we sort of dealt with, with the Sarah Bartman freaks movie episode where it was like, this is stuff that's like super interesting. But when you actually start talking about it, it's like, ugh. and you're talking about it like to tell the entire story with yeah. no interruptions and no, like, you know, nothing like that. That it's like, oh, yeah, well, this is, this is a lot. Cool. So let's talk murder ballads. Uh, nice. Okay. So I'm going to talk to you about murder ballads. There is a, there is a couple of things that I'll give you. Like there are a couple of content warnings in here. I'll be sure to like uh, give you all a heads up before we get super into them. But I don't think this is as grim as Scotty's. 
Who Hope knows? <laughs> you decide. <laughs> <laughs> you you all decide. Cool. So this the the research for this for my story kind of um, led to several rabbit holes. Uh, so a couple of the rabbit holes that I fell into come from uh, the following articles and whatnot. Uh, the first one is a thesis project or a thesis paper uh, titled This Murder Done, Misogyny, Femicide, and Modernity in 19th Century Appalachian Murder Ballads. Mm. And that was written by Christina Ruth Hasty. The second is The History of Murder Ballads and the Women Who Flipped the Script. And that's an article from sheshreds.com. Nice. The next is Lady Killers, Murder Ballads in the Country Women Who Sang Them, and that's from DangerousMinds.net. We also have How Hip Hop Revolutionized Murder Ballads, and that's from Medium.com. And then uh, Poor Boy, You're Bound to Die, that's History.net. And surprisingly, very little information came from Wikipedia. Wikipedia well, that's did, cool. <laughs> yeah, Wikipedia did not have a ton to say about murder ballads, which okay. I found shocking. Okay, so what the heck is a murder ballad? Murder ballad is a subgenre of traditional standard ballads. I think when we hear the word ballad, we sort of think of these like emotional, slow songs, but in actuality, the word ballad just means a narrative song that depicts an event. Okay. Um, sometimes those can be true events, and sometimes they're just, uh, you know, narrative songs about a, a fictional event okay murder ballads are songs that tell the events of a murder obviously and uh they can 100 percent be rockin beat driven fast tempoed songs there definitely are ones that are like slow and haunting uh and then there are other ones and we'll get into that i'll give you examples later but there are definitely ones that I'm kind of rock. Yeah. So while there were murder ballads that came out of the enslaved African community and the American Old West, the majority of uh, the U.S.'s murder ballads come out of the Southern Mountains region. That's, for anybody who doesn't know, Appalachia. Yeah. Uh, Pre-America, murder ballads were found in Scandinavia, England, Northern Ireland, and Lowland Scotland. They okay. don't really exist in Gaelic or Welsh music. And there are, I mean, and there are things like narco corridos, which is like sort of a Mexican, Latin American, distant cousin of murder ballads. Yeah. I mean, um, that, that's like a whole subject we should do at some point because that, that's a fascinating subject. Yeah. So, but, but mostly like these murder ballads really kind of come from, from like I said, Scandinavia, England, Northern Ireland, Lowland, Scotland. Because Appalachia was settled in the early days by folks from the Anglo-Scottish border country, mm -hmm. murder ballads were and still are quite popular in that area. And uh, most of the, the most sort of enduring murder ballads come from the hills and hollers of Appalachia. I have a soft spot for Appalachia because uh, yeah. I spent some time there. Okay, so in the British Isles, you had broadsides, which were poems that covered real events that were often printed and were meant to be read. They were kind of like an early tabloid. I actually think you talked about broadsides when you were talking about Sonny Bean. Yeah, yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. So music might be added later or they might be like, you know, sort of like set to song. Interesting. Um, after the fact and uh they would be performed and or sold outside courthouses as sort of like souvenirs uh which really kind of also again ties them into like the sort of tabloid culture murder ballads of appalachia tended to be originally music um, tended to be not musicless songs um 
instrumentless songs. Okay. So they had no written accompaniment. There was no like music. It was, they would be set to a tune. And then it was sort of like, if you want to jam out to this murder ballad, like pick up your banjo. Mm. Um, but it wasn't, they weren't like, they weren't composed. Right. It was more um, about the lyrics then. Very much so, mm. which leads me to my next point, And that the goal is letting the story do the work. There mm-hmm. are murder balladeers to this day who believe strongly in not letting the performance get in front of the story, mm-hmm. uh, which is funny because uh, I'd read a quote in one of these articles. It was a, a woman who was basically saying like, I'm hardcore paraphrasing here, mm-hmm. but you know, she was like, I rock at murder ballads because I don't add anything to it. Like I sing the song and I let the story and the words do the work. There are a lot of people who get in there and they want to, layer on like a lot of emotion and a lot of vocal tricks and mm-hmm. that's that's not what a murder ballad is about yeah so murder ballads existed as a way to pass the sort of like bloody news of the day through oral tradition right. they frequently told the true stories of murdered women uh, there are some murder ballads that cover murdered men but for the most part femicide is and was the main theme uh I quick mean, little I've- I was just going to say, I feel like in all of the murder ballads I've heard, and I've heard a fair number, like 80% of them, if not more, are about murdering women. Yeah, I feel like the ones that, like, the sort of Old West ones had more to do, like, those were ones where you would find less murdered women and more, like, you know, two guys uh, had a shootout type of thing. Yeah, like, uh, what was the Marty Robbins El Paso song? Probably sort of falls in that category. Um, I don't know. I don't think I know that song. It's a good song. Okay. (laughs) So uh, a quick little side note about femicide. Uh, It is a term that was coined in the 1970s by feminist scholar Diana Russell. Russell and and her colleague Jane Caputi say, quote, the murders of women by husbands, lovers, fathers, acquaintances, and strangers are not the product of some inexplicable device. Murder is simply the most extreme form of sexist terrorism. A new word is needed to reflect this political understanding. Femicide best describes the murders of women by men motivated by hatred, contempt, pleasure, or a sense of ownership of women. So we're looking at a very, uh, at some, it sounds very broad, but we're looking at very specific parameters for what equals femicide. Yeah. Many murder ballad subjects were also pregnant at the time of their slayings. I guess I should start. I, let me just go ahead and say this. Uh, I probably should have said this at the beginning. I guess just sort of a general content warning. Murder ballads and all of this stuff deals with violence against women. So, you know, again, if that is, if you are not in a place where you can hear uh, stories about that, I'm not going to get too into detail about anything, but if you're not in a place where you can hear stories about that right now, like, cool, 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 catch us next time. Yeah. Okay, so back to the grisly subject. So many murder ballad subjects were were pregnant at the time of their slayings, and they were often killed by the baby's father. Mm-hmm. Sort of, re- and this reinforces two ideas. One, that pregnant unmarried women were disposable and inconvenient. And yeah. two, in the face of the sexual freedom movement, because the murder... M- Murder ballads really were coming, like really gaining popularity in the 18th century. Like that's when they were being passed down as oral tradition. And, and like a lot of the mm. women that I'm going to talk about, like they were women who were killed in, in that century. Uh, as we get into the 1900s, that stuff sort of starts to change. 
So you've got this idea that pregnant unmarried women are disposable and inconvenient. And two, that in the face of the sexual freedom movement that was beginning to pick up speed around the world in the 19th century, murder ballads were also a way to um, warn young women of like of that time not to head down the path of free love ism <laughs> um so in other words women engaging in bodily autonomy ran the risk of becoming the victims of violence seems um, like this is a recurring theme that even goes to like the gibson girl and stuff like yeah that. i mean re- it's 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 really i i like intellectually i understand it because i i understand how terrifying it must have been for you know sort of old school of thought people to imagine a world wherein a woman could be like i don't want to marry you nor do i have to Mm -hmm. um and you know like having sex with people out of wedlock and with whoever you wanted was like a step in that direction yeah i think it's bullshit but i can like like i said i can intellectually understand why it was so terrifying Okay, so uh, another side note is that the men who murdered these women were often cast in a sympathetic light in the sort of like original murder ballads. That's interesting. mm -hmm, They were seen as co-victims of these so-called crimes of passion. Tom Dooley is a great example of that. I was just thinking of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he kills this woman and it's all very like, you know down your head tom dooley like it's very like oh tom Tom dooley poor 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 guy hang down your head tom dooley hang down your head and cry hang down your head tom dooley poor boy you're bound to die fuck that dude yeah (laughs) fuck you tom dooley yeah so even though these ballads you know covered these really grisly and violent stories people loved them like you they could not get enough of these murder ballads the public's curiosity and sort of engagement with violence as entertainment is actually considered some of the earliest forms of true crime media yeah yeah so i another just sort of interesting uh little to the broad broadsides broadsheets like say that again like tying it to like the broadsides or broadsheets or whatever they were. Like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just as like a, you know, interesting sort of thing is that I think, I feel like, you know, with the advent of like so many true crime podcasts and, you know, uh, the general population's sort of fascination with true crime media, I feel like there's been a lot of conversations that it's like, oh, why is this happening now? And oh, it's, you know, it's this and it's that. And it's it, like, it's this like weird hero worship of these serial killers. And um, one, it's not new. I mean, yeah. in addition to murder ballads, I mean, people in centuries, in the centuries, even before murder ballads were, were going and they were, they were watching courtroom trials and they were watching, you know, right. hangings and beheadings and people being drawn and quartered. Like humanity has always had a fascination with that, which leads me to this next point, which is sort of like a psychology fun fact uh, that comes from the thesis that I mentioned above. And this is, quote, ethnomusicologist, which side, also sidebar sounds like, an awesome job. Yeah. <laughs> um, but ethnomusicologist Tomi Hahn describes the power of the extreme on our senses and why we are drawn to forms of entertainment well outside popular's popular ideas of normalcy, the mainstream, or even safety. Hahn claims that the experience of the sensually extreme, so like senses, not 
sex, you perverts. Mm -hmm. The experience of the sensually extreme provides us with an opportunity for disorientation that helps us define not only our own boundaries, but understanding of the world around us as well. I think that's fascinating. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of think pieces and a lot of people are trying to figure out why people, especially women are so fascinated with true crime. And I think that idea of it being something that helps us define our own boundaries is probably one of the things that hits it closer on the head for me and my own sort of fascination and, with true crime. Yeah, you've talked uh, better a lot than anything about, else. Yeah, you've talked a lot about that. Yeah. When you talk about yeah. your interest in true crime. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think it's also for me, for like part of it for me is, is I'm just sort of like fascinated with the human condition and that might just be who I am. It might also be the work that I do as an actor and stuff, but there is mm-hmm. like, and there are 100% true crime fans out there that are creepy. You know, there's like the person who got the tattoo of the Ted Bundy bite mark and like that kind of shit. Is yeah, that, the people that, who that buy. Is, and the people who like, you know, wed serial killers when they're in jail and all the, you know, stupid like, women who are writing Chris Watts horny letters while he rots in jail. Like that is something different. Right. It's like all the people who buy like the, the John Wayne Gacy paintings and stuff. Like yeah. That. Yeah. And that is not where I come at it from, but there is something about, like I said, I'm, I'm just endlessly fascinated with the human condition and trying to connect the dots from from both sides, right? Mm-hmm. Of how you get how you get from A to B um, as both a somebody who commits acts of violence and somebody who is a, a victim right. um, or survivor of it. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. Famous murder ballads, because uh, there's a couple. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. This is just some of the ones that are uh, kind of the most well-known. Uh, the aforementioned Tom Dooley tells the story of the murder of Laura Foster in Wilkes County, North Carolina, by the uh, titular Coxsplat. Uh, Laura had an affair with Fuckface, and when she became pregnant, they made a plan to elope. But instead of eloping, he killed her. And at Dooley's trial, witnesses said that Dooley had sworn to get revenge on whoever had given him the pock, uh, a.k.a. syphilis. Because, uh, of course, he wasn't just sleeping with Laura. He was slinging his dick all over that town and was sleeping with, at minimum, Laura's cousin Anne and at least one other woman named Pauline. Again. Titular cocksplat. Yeah, <laughs> titular yeah. cocksplat. Like... You know, again, this is not like a, this is not like me getting off on like a pro monogamy thing or anything like that, but But one, you're not playing safe and two, everything else that I'm about to say. Yeah. So I guess once Laura got pregnant, Dooley assumed that Laura was the one who had given him syphilis. Like I, oh. th- I, yeah. Like there's no. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to like. I mean, this goes back to like, like it's as dumb as the logic I was talking about with some of the satanic panic stuff. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. there were actually people who believed that Anne. So Tom kills Laura. Right. Um, that happens, and in the aftermath of it, which I'll get to in a second, there were actually people in the area who believed that her cousin Anne was the actual murder and that Dooley being, you know, the nice, the nice dude that he was, he had only taken the fall for the murder to save Anne. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I, that's, 
a load of BS. Um, put an asterisk by that. Okay. Um, so Laura was found much later in a shallow grave with a single stab wound to the chest. Mm. Dooley tried to run, but he was eventually caught with the help of Colonel James Grayson. James Grayson makes an appearance in the song, who actually had really didn't have a lot to do with it, other than the fact that Dooley was working with Grayson or something. And when Grayson heard about it, he was like, oh, hey, cops, like Dooley's right here. (laughs) That's kind of the role, the sole role that he had in it. Uh, The song makes it sound like he was... Wearing like a, I'm a stupid t-shirt or something. (laughs) Yeah, and the song really makes it sound like Grayson is sort of like a hero and all this, and that's, yeah. he, he barely had anything to do with it. So Dooley's tried, he's found guilty, and he died by hanging on May 1st, 1868. At his execution, he's said to have said, quote, gentlemen, do you see this hand? I didn't harm a hair on the girl's head, end quote. Mm. Uh, well, too bad, because uh, you're still a dick. Yeah. The asterisk that I mentioned earlier about Anne's involvement. Uh, so many believe that she was guilty at least an accomplice for the rest Mm -hmm. of her life. And she is said to have made a deathbed confession saying that she killed Laura in a fit of jealousy. People who were with her on her deathbed also say that she saw black cats running up the walls and could hear and smell bacon frying. So I guess that's like bacon in hell. I don't know. But so there's that. Most famous version of the song is done by the Kingston Trio, uh, although the story of Tom Dooley has found its way into several pieces, including one by death metal band Macabre, uh, oh, which yeah. appeared, no, mm-hmm, I know that. Yeah, which I know appeared that on their album of acoustic fo- folk songs, Macabre Minstrels, Morbid mm-hmm. Campfire Songs, so that was released in 2002. <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite albums. (laughs) Yeah. So Tom Dooley, the song Tom Dooley is a great example of the murderer having a sympathetic gaze, being given a sympathetic gaze in the song. Uh, And the song seems to be told from the viewpoint of a third person narrator. The viewpoint, I guess, in murder ballads is, is sometimes it's the victim, sometimes it's the murderer sometimes it's like a sort of disembodied narrator sometimes it's like you know somebody who's like watching the hanging sometimes it mixes and it goes Uh from one to the other not not real big on rules (laughs) like hard and fast (laughs) rules for this they kind of you know went by whatever was going to tell the best story. Yeah. Uh, second one is Omi Wise, which is based on the tragic tale of Naomi Omi Wise. Okay. She was killed in 1908. The exact details of her life and death are, of course, lost to history. She's said to have been an orphan who fell in love with this guy, you know, and had the sort of audacity to have sex out of wedlock with, with a man who killed her when she became pregnant. Again, Recurring theme. Like, yeah, recurring theme. Her killer, a man by the name of John Lewis, is described in Wikipedia as a ne'er-do-well who never meant anything about anything serious. <laughs> I, I feel like the page on Omi Wise is written by somebody in Appalachia. Like the vernacular that is used in it is just so regional and doesn't sound, you know, like sort of academic and and detached. It sounds very much like somebody was like, well, I'm going to make a Wikipedia page about Omi Wise because there ain't one yet. (laughs) So John Lewis was tried for Omi's murder, found not guilty, and he died five years later confessing to the murder on his deathbed. The Probably the most well-known version of the song belongs to Doc Watson, who learned the song from his mother. 
which I mm. thought was interesting. Yeah. This one is this like, I, like Tom Dooley, whatever, screw Tom Dooley. Only wise, this song, uh, especially the Doc Watson version, hits me really hard, like really hard in the feels, because while the song is told from third person, it also gives voice to Omi and her murderer. So it switches like stanzas um, mm. and includes Omi begging for her life once the plan to kill her has come to light. Ooh. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, it's very sad. Have mercy on my baby and spare me my life. I'll go home as a beggar and ever be your wife. Um, okay, Pearl Bryan. Her story is probably the most well-known and there is the most information about her out there. This was actually very briefly mentioned in a recent uh, hometown story of a mini-sode episode of My Favorite Murder. Um, mm. And when I was doing it, I was like, wait, hold on. This is this sounds really familiar. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, it's, it's, it's the exact same thing. Okay, so Pearl Bryan. In 1895, Pearl Bryan had the misfortune of meeting Scott Jackson. He was a dental student at the Ohio College of Dental Surgery. They began an affair and she, surprise, surprise, ended up pregnant. Mm -hmm. On January 31st, 1896, she met Jackson and his roommate in Ohio, I think. Mm, mm, I, I'm, don't quote me on that. Okay. Um, so folklore varies greatly about what happened to her after this meeting. There's a lot of, basically from, from the time that they met until the end of her life trigger warning here for anybody skip ahead but her decapitated body was found the next day by a 17 year old farmhand named johnny hewling who probably did not receive therapy for the ptsd that discovery surely yeah. gave him even though her body was found without a head she was identified by the tags in the custom-made shoes she wore from Greencastle, indiana which is where she was from uh, i don't know that something about that just breaks my heart yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about Pearl Bryan that is just like, for fuck's sake. She was five months pregnant at the time of her death. Her head was never found. Mm. And her two murderers gave several locations for where her head could be found. None of them proved fruitful. Okay. So these two assholes, they were tried, they were found guilty, and they were sentenced to death by hanging uh, the morning of March 20th, 1897. From what I can tell... It sounds like they went to trial, the judge, whatever, was like guilty, and then they literally like took them to the gallows. Yeah. There was I, no like. <laughs> I think that's the way they, it was like Old West Justice. That's yeah, <laughs> they, were, they were like, all right, let's go. They, okay, so I guess in, you know, a little bit of like poetic justice, reports say that both men survived the initial drop. And so they died of strangulation some minutes later. Mm. They were the last two people hanged in Newport, Kentucky. And as a matter of fact, the gallows were torn down and destroyed after their execution. Okay. I'm just going to say I'm playing the world's smallest violin. Oh, yeah. I like so. Pearl is said to haunt the Bob Mackey's music world, which is a honky tonk in Wilder, Kentucky. But it nice. seems like if she was going to haunt a place, it would be where her body was found, which is where a YMCA now stands in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Okay. Uh, the two places are actually only about two and a half miles apart, but yeah. Also, 
I feel like Bob Mackey's might be great for an odds and ends episode because it's like <laughs> honky tonk bar, like music venue that is said to be insanely haunted because of the murders, suicides, blah. Like it's just endless. Yeah, we're gonna have let's put a pin in that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which you know it's one of those things where I'm like, did any of this stuff happen here, or is it just like good for business? Yeah, lots of versions of this song. Probably the best and most haunting version in my humble opinion is a 2015 version recorded by the band elephant micah if for nothing else because it starts out and there's plenty of other reasons like it's just a really beautiful song but for me for my money for what it's worth i like it because it starts out with people if you'll listen rather than young ladies if you'll listen people if you'll listen a story said Pearl Bryan is one of the murder ballad victims we actually know the most about. Yeah. Um, yeah like there's, I mean, her Wikipedia page is vastly more. Uh, Laura Foster, who's Tom Dooley's victim, doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Really? Like, yeah. No, they're like, here, we want to talk about Tom Dooley. Yeah. Well, that's, that's frustrating. Yeah, like that dude. Um, so as murder ballads sort of started to make their way into the folk country bluegrass world in the 20th century, women started to put their stamps on these grizzly songs and they even began to turn the tables on the standard murder ballad narrative and like put their own spin on it. So traditionally before this, there were, I mean, you know, like Doc Watson, which he probably was not living in the, in the 19th century in the 1800s. <laughs> but, you know, like the song had been passed down to him. But if there were recorded versions, they were really made famous by by male musicians. Right. And as, uh, as like I said, as the 20th century started going in, women started to be like, um, we're actually going to tell these stories because nice. we've got a bit of a different spin to put on them. So in 1924, musicians Ava Davis and Samantha Baumgarner recorded uh, the murder ballad by the name of John Hart on the banjo um it is a murder ballad that doesn't deal with the death of the woman at the hands of a man i know that song Mm -hmm. john hardy killed a dude over a game of craps Uh, Mm -hmm. as you do as you do in the late 1930s the coon creek girls who had actually named themselves the red river ramblers but had their name changed by their jerk manager who thought his name sounded more country Mm. uh recorded their version of pretty polly pretty polly is probably one of the longest like it's been a it's it's been around since the 1700s yeah that's another one i know i've heard yeah and some version of it and it's one that came from the British Isles. It deals with the murder of a okay. woman, Polly. There's other things that it's like, her name was like, it, like her name changes. This one was a little hard to like nail down because people were like, oh, it was about a boat. No, yeah, she's Polly like, or she's Molly or I don't know. I mean, it's almost like the Sonny Bean story where it's just like a lot of like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe this happened. Yes. <laughs> so it deals with the murder of a woman, Polly by a ship carpenter who uh, as like then as legend has it is either haunted by her ghost or confesses to the murder or goes insane or his ship is cursed or all of the above or all of the above. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's really not clear. Like I said, it has a super long history. The original broadsides, which I think still exist for this 
story came from Hampshire, England. Okay. Anyway, the Coon Creek girls recorded a version that, like, honestly sounds, like, pretty menacing. Um, Yeah, like, the banjo on it really slaps, and it really gives this (laughs) listener, like, a sense that's, like, something's coming after. Yeah, like, after you. Oh, I used to be a rounder, I've been around this town. Oh, I used to be a rounder, been around this town. I've courted pretty Polly, I've been all around. I've been entrenched in murder ballads. <laughs> if anybody was to like see me these last couple of days, they'd be like, are you okay? <laughs> then in the 1940s, female musicians started really, like really, really... so. Up until the 1940s, women started recording murder ballads. And in the 1940s, that's when female musicians really started like taking hold of the narrative. And the stories switched from femicide to women murdering men who'd done them wrong, sometimes on accident, sometimes intentionally. Uh, Songs like I Didn't Know the Gun Was Loaded by Patsy Montana Mm. sort of turned the murder yeah, yeah turned the murder ballad tradition even like more on its head with verses like now one night she had a date with a wrestling heavyweight and he tried a brand new hold she did not appreciate so she whipped out her pistol and she shot him in the knee and quickly she sang this plea i didn't know the gun was loaded and i'll never never do it again <laughs> um funny thing about these is that it's always like you know, the song is, is, is cranking along and it's doing this thing, but it, when it comes to this type of thing, the woman's always like, oops, my bad. <laughs> like, it's very like, like very much using the trope. Yeah. No, that, um, that, that's a fantastic song. That's, yeah. that, I'm going to go listen to that right now. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> I, have, I have, story. You, you just walk away. <laughs> just the sound of the headphones falling on the desk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm almost I'm I'm not too far done. I'm not too far from done. It's also around this time that these women started stopped using true stories and instead started writing these like fictional murder stories. In 1966, Wanda Jackson recorded the box it came in about mm. a woman who is not only abandoned by her husband but also robbed by him. So this son of a bitch he takes everything from her. He even takes her wedding dress, leaving only the box it came in behind. The mm. song ends with a promise that he's got a new sweetheart to fill my wedding gown, but somewhere I'll find him, then I'll have peace of mind, and the box that he comes in will be all satin lined. But somewhere I'll find him, then I'll have peace of mind. The boxy comes home in will be all set in line. Dang, Wanda! Yeah, no, that that's another one I know. That that's another fantastic song. Yeah, it's great. Um, so now we're starting. Now I'm gonna talk about like more modern female murder balladeers, and we're gonna kick things right off with the queen of country music, Dolly Parton. Um, uh, yes. If you want a great podcast listen, if you're looking for something that's sort of like a limited series, and you want to know more about Dolly Parton, which you should, because she's just a fascinating character and a and like an, an incredible human being you should take a listen to dolly parton's america and oh i guess that was also one of my one of my sources the first episode of that podcast i believe is called sad ass songs <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so you can take a listen to that episode to learn more about her murder ballads and, uh, you know, the general badassery of, of Dolly Parton. But she wrote this song called The Bridge in 1967 about a woman who falls in love with a man under a bridge, gets pregnant, and when the man leaves her, she returns to the bridge to end her life. The bridge so high, the bridge so tall, here is where it started on the bridge. Um, it has one of the most impactful endings of a song ever, in oh. my opinion. Like, it's, it's some fine songwriting and storytelling on Dolly Parton's part and should be listened to when you have, you know, like two minutes and 37 seconds to like actually focus on the song and listen to it so that you can get the full impact of the end. Folk singer Joan Baez loves herself some murder ballads. She's a big activist and she has, I mean, she's just been doing a lot, but um, she has recorded many murder ballads over her 60 year career. She knew Joan Baez has been singing for that fucking long. I had, I had been around no for a long she, ass time. Yeah, I had no idea she was around that long. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, she's also uh, Mexican. She was born in Puebla. I think I knew. Mm-hmm. Maybe knew that. <laughs> Vicki Lawrence's The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. Mm. The argument can be made that that is, in fact, a murder ballad and is known for being narrated by the man's baby sister and for its surprise ending. Mm-hmm. If you have never heard The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, please go listen to it. It's a it's a fantastic that's a, like that's a fun one yeah like 1970s murder ballad. it's fantastic yeah. i love i love that song i would make a case for he hit me and it felt like a kiss by the crystals being a kind of r&b version of a murder ballad hmm. yeah i would yeah i, would, I could i would make the case for that i wouldn't um, argue with that yeah. Goodbye Earl, uh, which was released by the <laughs> Chicks in 1999, is a yep. sort of postmodern murder ballad, righteously vengeful, <laughs> up-tempo, upbeat, and with a happy ending for its female protagonist, Wanda, because she ends up selling fruit by the roadside with her best friend after Earl's demise. The song was super controversial when it came out, and a lot of radio stations flat out refused to play it. I feel like I kind of remember that. Which is just insane to me because I'm like, were you playing Tom Dooley? Oh, I'm sure they were, yeah. Then fuck you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know. It was all very like, they're like happily murdering people. And I'm like, they happily murdered one dude because he was a dick. I would be like, you know, go listen to some death metal if you're so upset. Yeah, but then it's well, like, this is kind of the country. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, they've actually had congressional hearings about death metal lyrics. Yes. So. Okay. <laughs> like, all right. All right. All right. <laughs> artist Valerie June, who one is just an artist that y'all should check out but she has a song called shotgun and it covers uh, a jealous lover who kills their cheating partner and then themselves this one is a really nice departure from the sort of twangy banjo-y traditional murder ballad june has this really like bluesy vocal and the sound really packs a punch she's also uh she's also a murder balladeer of color so definitely check her out and again like nice. all of her music is um, great. It is so good. And I saw you in her arms, darling. Well, I saw you 
kiss her lips, baby And come back home and tell me your sweet lies Hooray for the riffraffs, the body electric, which really uses the medium to explore how society treats violence, especially violence against women, with detachment. Also an excellent uh, and haunting song. Songwriter and singer Alinda Segara says, quote, I'm mostly familiar with how the body electric has taught me there is a true connection between gendered violence and racist violence. There is a weaponization of the body happening right now in America. Our bodies are being turned against us. Black and brown bodies are being portrayed as inherently dangerous. A black person's size and stature are being used as reason for murder against them. This is ultimately a deranged fear of the power and capabilities of black people. It is the same evil idea that leads us to blame women for attacks by their abusers. Normalizing rape, domestic abuse, and even murder of women of all races is an effort to take the humanity out of our female bodies. To objectify and to ridicule the female body is ultimately a symptom of the fear of the power women hold end quote wow yeah again also a great a great song a great she has an incredible voice so go ahead and give that a listen to final murder ballad like fun fact (laughs) so again (laughs) so we end on a, a a slightly higher note murder ballads are closely related to their you know i was talking about the narco curridos earlier on and saying they were sort of distant cousins of murder ballads. Um, What I'm about to talk about next is not a distant cousin, but it's a very close, like, first cousin. Uh, And that is the Teenage Tragedy Song, which reached Mm. peak popularity in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, The (laughs) styles include tearjerkers, death discs, and splatter platters. Splatter platters? These were the names that disc jockeys of the time gave these albums, these sort of like teenage tragedy songs. So that's how that's how they got those names. But this is, we're talking songs like Last Kiss uh, by Wayne Cochran, uh, which was also covered by Pearl Jam. It's an excellent oh, cover. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. The where, I... oh, where has my baby been? Yep. Yeah. Oh, away from me. Yeah. That that's a great song. Yeah. It's a great song. I've never heard um, the original. It's I mean, I like, I like, you know, all due respect, Wayne Cochran. I do. <laughs> I kind of like Pearl Jam's better. Yeah. Um, Dead Man's Curve by Jan and Dean, and uh, Leader of the Pack by the Shangri Las. Oh yeah, of mm-hmm. course. Teenage tragedy songs actually fell out of favor around 1965 when they were drowned out by the British invasion. Mm. One song that I was going to include in the murder ballad, but then when I actually looked into it actually falls under the teenage tragedy song is ode to billy joe by bobby gentry Mm, yeah Um, okay mm -hmm. and like everything about it makes you think that it would be a murder ballad but it's not it's a teenage tragedy song i would have thought of it as a murder ballad probably yeah so would i but the thing is is one there's no murder yes that's right yeah and two it's and and that song like there's a lot of uh, i don't want to say i I don't know if i want to say mystery but there's a lot of like contemplation uh and questions around that song because bobby gentry has been sort of notoriously like i don't know because everybody's like what the fuck were they throwing off the bridge Mm -hmm. uh and she's like i don't know and they're like no but really and she's like i don't know 
Uh, and she really wrote it to be more, which I think is why I would have, I would have been like, no, that's a murder ballad is because she wrote, she says that she wrote the song to really put a lens on the detachment that we as a society have towards violence. Right. Cause it's the way her family's like, Oh yeah, Billy Joe's doing this. Oh, and you do, we tell you he jumped off the bridge and yeah, that happened. And are you going to go to church this Sunday? And you know, yeah. It just like flows, the news flows over the narrator in the song. So that's a brief little introduction into murder ballads. Um, you can find lots of playlists on Spotify that have a lot of, I mean, I saw playlists that I was like, this isn't a murder ballad, um, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> but they are, uh, they hold a, a, a sort of special place in my heart due to the sort of true crime tie and uh because they are so rooted in appalachian culture right all your time in virginia yeah Yeah. i um i mean i obviously like i knew songs like the king's trio like tom dooley like i think that was a song i knew from my dad actually knew a lot of those like really famous ones and then you you get the lead belly uh yep in the pines you know i don't know if that's technically a murder ballad but it sort of feels like it's i in the ballpark feel like i saw it listed yeah that's a great yeah. song nirvana's cover of that by the way on the unplugged album is that might be that might best. be one of the songs that i saw on the murder ballad spotify playlist yeah yeah and it's for me for you know for my money i prefer the appalachian murder ballads versus versus the ones that sort of come from the British Isles. They just, again, they just speak to me more. I like, you know. I, like I probably would do. too. Cause like I, my uncle, my uncle Eddie was a country Western singer, mm-hmm. guitarist back in the day. And he used to do some of these songs. He would perform some of these songs. So I, I have that kind of connection. I think where I first encountered the term murder ballad though, was Nick Cave of the Bad Seeds album, Murder Ballad. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which, which also is a lot of fun when you're trying to research murder ballads and everybody's like Nick Cave and it's like yeah because no. it's yeah <laughs> it's the most and it's like his I mean they're all like he wrote all of them the you know I think those one song Stagger Lee is sort of a cover but then he just added a bunch of like really offensive lyrics to like <laughs> to like edge it up a little bit but yeah Stagger, like, Stagger Lee is actually one of the um, is actually one of the murder ballads that comes from the black community oh yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. That makes mm-hmm. sense. But yeah, I think I think Nick Cave was where I first kind of encountered the term. I didn't realize it wasn't something he hadn't made up himself. And then yeah, kind of yeah. once you like dig into it, there's this whole history. Yeah, and our friends at uh, Trick Lock, which is a theater here in Albuquerque, they did a show a few years ago called "Her Murder Ballads." I think Her so. Murder- I think it was called that. Um, I hope I'm not getting the name wrong. Which actually sort of again goes. I think if I'm remembering correctly, Scotty, right, it actually sort of flips the trope on its head and is talking about women as murderers. And I think, I think there was yeah. some like infanticide and familiacide and stuff in there. Yeah, um, that's my memory. That's my memory. Yeah. Actually. Again, which was fun for my little true crime murder ballad loving heart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, there are some great songs. I'm going to have to check out that Dolly Parton one. I don't think I've ever heard of that one. Yeah, it's 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 also just really funny to, <laughs> again on that podcast to listen to her because I mean she's like she you know she uses word like tits and she's <laughs> very you know it's 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 a very cool podcast because uh they go they they get in pretty close to her and I like 
One of the things I also think is super fascinating about Dolly Parton is that she has created a set of boundaries for herself as somebody who is extraordinarily famous. Um, in the podcast, they talk about this a little bit. There is something, I think it's called a Q score mm-hmm. um, that is... Um, it's like the likability score or something. Essentially, the yeah. likability score of, of celebrities and, and whatnot. Beyonce is like, I'm sorry, not Beyonce. Dolly Parton is like at the top of that list. And it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And her negative perceptions are lower than I think almost anybody else. And this is why I was like Beyonce. Beyonce has like a negative perception score of like 33, which the guy's like, who has a negative perception of Beyonce? <laughs> uh, but I'm sure people do. I mean, I think but, I know a couple of those people. But yeah, Dolly Parton doesn't really have that. She talks about, like, they talk about feminism. She talks about, I think, again, in that first episode, she's like, you know, I was going through a hard time and and I was really struggling. And the guy who hosts the podcast was like, well, what were you struggling with? And she goes, that's personal. And he's like, okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And she's never like, she's not shitty about it. She's not, there's not even a sense of like any kind of hackles or like defense going up about it. She's just like, I'm not going to talk about that. Yeah. She's got her boundaries. Yeah. And she's done incredible uh, philanthropic work. She funded the COVID vaccines. Thank you, Dolly Parton. I mean, honestly, <laughs> like if someone told me they didn't like Dolly Parton, I would just assume they were a sociopath. Like, well, there are people who have issues with her because she will not she will not claim the label of feminist. Yeah, I guess I And she's that. she's she's very adamant about that. And they talk about that in the podcast. And she basically comes down to it. And this is they're um oh God, I found this like fascinating Twitter thread that was like here is why you should not be upset at Dolly Parton not claiming the label of feminist. And somebody in the podcast posits the theory that Dolly is a third wave feminist who grew up during second wave feminism. Mm -hmm. So like, it was just never gonna... It wasn't gonna line up. It wasn't gonna line up. But, you know, she talks about, she's like, I'm like, I hold those beliefs in practice. So, and that's what matters. I mean, I just, I, I, I have a problem with anyone who just feels like they have the right to inflict a label on anybody. And not that like feminism is a label that is inflicted, you know, but like she doesn't want it. She gets to make that choice for herself. You know, I don't, I don't think, I think look at the whole, like, look at the whole story of the person of her, both her musical talent but also like everything she's done in her life rather than like let's zero in on this one thing to be upset. Yeah. And she is, she's also, oh God, she has this one beautiful quote about forgiveness. Cause the guy who basically like discovered Dolly, he put her on his show and I'm not remembering his name right now, but he was a big country dude. And he like hired Dolly because his girl singer was leaving the show and he was like, Oh, we're going to bring in Dolly Parton. And like, she wrote, I will always love you for this guy. Oh, because they were splitting business wise. Mm. And it was a big old thing and he didn't want to do it. And he didn't want to let her go out on her own. And she was like, you know, he was very much like, this is my show. And she was like, it's my life. Um, So she like went home and she wrote, I will always love you. And she came back and she was like, I'm leaving. And she sang him the song. And he was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, how do you argue with that? Yeah. But she, it's, it's interesting because the people on the podcast are sort of like, 
you know, kind of trying to be like, so yeah, so this was like a bad relationship and he was doing some stuff and she was like, you know, we, we were, we were both at fault and, and, Mm. you know, I get where he was coming from. It was his show. And, and I get what, you know, I was, I was doing that, but I did have, I did have dreams for myself and like, she's just so sweet. And she talks about, she says something and the, the host is like, so it's about forgiveness. And she says, it's all about forgiveness. Yeah. Like, you can't like you have you have to come at everything from a place of forgiveness and i was like damn i don't know i just feel like after (laughs) after the fucking like maze of horrors from my story (laughs) let's let's just celebrate dolly parton yeah just (laughs) celebrate dolly wonderful person she is yeah if you get a chance to go to pigeon forge and visit dollywood please do that you can see the they have a replica of the little two room cabin that she grew up in the um it was it, the replica was done by her mom and i believe her aunt so like mm. and she talks about it in the po- in the podcast she's like those are my grandpappy's boots that you see there's those <laughs> ones right by the bed nice stuff was taken from their home also in the podcast they actually get to go out and see because the cabin the actual cabin it still exists oh nice so they take the host of the podcast, the the host and the producer out and there. And it's like, it had fought, like it had basically like deteriorated down to the foundation and then they sort of built it back up. And now it's kind of like a little vacation home. Like when any member of the Parton family like wants to get away from it, every, from it all for a bit, they can, they can go out to the cabin oh, that's cool. and hang out there. She does a fucking, she does an incredible reading program where she sends kids a book every month of their life from age zero to five. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, she's just, like she's just. I mean, you can have Varg Vikernes or you can have Dolly Parton. <laughs> yeah, or you can. I'll have let Dolly you Parton. make the choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, choose Dolly. If <laughs> given the Dolly. choice, choose Dolly always. <laughs> have you ever heard the? Um, I'm sure you have. I'm sure we've talked about it. The where they took Jolene and like slowed it down. Yes, and it is like the most haunting, creepy. Like it doesn't even sound like a mistake or anything. It is. <laughs> It just yeah. gives you goosebumps. Yeah. yeah, Jolene's a great, a great song. I did <laughs> so. Fun fact here. This is so stupid. I'm sorry, everybody is listening to this. But we did. I did Jolene at karaoke one time, and basically had a running commentary because you know she's doing this whole like your ivory skin, your eyes of green. Uh, you know, it's it's obviously this woman who is like beautiful. I think she's got red hair and. Mm-hmm. And all these things and like, you know, and the song is very interesting too, because she's not like, fuck you, bitch. She's like, please don't like, don't take yeah, this guy so away sad. from me. And the commentary that I was running was basically like, you know, this isn't Jolene's fault. Like <laughs> go after the dude, like yeah. dump the dude and keep Jolene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's the real thesis nugget yeah. of the song uh is that dolly and jolene need to go off and yeah, ride into is, the sunset what is this like gomer bringing to the table here? yeah fuck you dude <laughs> <laughs> yeah so again as always choose dolly all right that's all we got welcome back everybody happy 2021 yeah, yeah let's make uh this year better than last year jesus come on guys wear a mask Stay Please. safe. You know, if you live in New Mexico, you can go to the New Mexico vaccine website and get signed up and registered. That'll let you know when you can get your vaccine. Oh, yeah. uh, when Maybe it becomes I'll available. 
put that in the show notes. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, yeah, this was a long, it's amazing. Like this was like probably our grimmest episode that then ended in just like a celebration of Dolly Parton. Yeah. Again, choose Dolly. Choose Dolly. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good night and week. Everybody will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.